WZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. I am Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about land use, housing, and politics. Today in the program, it is the 2020 election recap episode. We have back on Daryl Owens of East Bay Fair 1. We pick apart this election. There's some bad things. How bad were they? There's some good things. How good were they? From the local issues to the state races and, and so on. Uh, and then we get off onto various uh, various sideline topics. It's a bit of a long episode, so let's uh, let's just get into it. All right, so uh, welcome back one more time, Daryl, uh, to this program. Uh, I guess another episode of uh, Berserkly until you get that spun up yourself. Um, how, how's that coming yeah, along? I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back. It's a good uh, second pilot. The first one wasn't accepted by the studio, so we have to go again. Oh, they're they're so tough these days. Uh, yeah. yeah, so this is this is an election recap. I mean, I mean, you can read the news anywhere, but you know, this is kind of yeah, maybe just kind of picking it up uh, and just kind of seeing where everything is. Uh, just 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 first off, uh, I mean, all the local stuff people are talking about. It. The national stuff is is taking all the air in the room, but just there's a lot of I think kind of uh bad vibes as far as just how things went down in california are you feeling that or how are you feeling i mean i'm not gonna lie i'm not surprised by any of the results uh people are pretty down because they had extremely high expectations and they forgot what state they're in and that's fine um i i, I am somewhat uplifted by the results of proposition 15 even though it wasn't a win i think that there's a lot that we can take from that that was good and I think that people should recognize that. But, I mean, the other propositions, in my opinion, were DOA. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the ones, I mean, the the, the close ones are so, so heartbreaking because it got either way. But uh, Well, it's not that it's heartbreaking. It's that, like, dude, okay, let's talk about Proposition 15 real quick because okay. I know that's what everyone wants to hear. Okay? Sure. That was the proposition to basically eliminate all the, like, commercial tax breaks. Um, that Proposition 13, the infamous 1978 law that allows, that basically keeps property taxes low the older your property is and the um, and since it was last assessed. And basically you don't have property taxes that reflect the actual uh, recent valuation of your property. Like, that was huge. I, I can't emphasize enough that like getting rid of Proposition 13 in any form is unheard of. We call it the third rail of politics in California for a reason. It is presumed that anything that even touches Proposition 13 and is not expanding its benefits is basically DOA. And in this state, we were only one to two percentage points shy of eliminating tax breaks for corporations and commercial properties valued at more than $3 million. And that was with a suboptimal campaign. Like that. Come on, like I, I don't, I understand it's sad and it's unfortunate, but that just gets me super excited for next time. If we can do it a little better next time, run those margins up a little better in LA County, get all nine Bay Area counties on board instead of just eight, and getting a couple of nearby counties like San Joaquin County on board, I mean, we could win that proposition easily. We were only a couple hundred thousand votes short. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, if this was normal times, if this wasn't for COVID, I think you could look at this. I mean, a lot of money went into it, a lot of hope went into it. It was kind of a couple years in the making, but, you know, it was a pretty good result. I think what is feeling real, real pit in the stomach right now is this became 20 times as necessary due to all the austerity, which we're now is just going to happen. We, like, from the state level, especially the municipal level, 
we are going to be in a real, real bad place real soon. And Prop 15 was kind of our last chance to not have a real ugly uh, landing with COVID. And now we're, we're, it's going to happen. It's going to be ugly. And I think maybe, you know, maybe we'll get this two years down the road or something, but I don't know. I mean, or maybe am I just being too uh, fatalistic and you think that, you know, the landing won't be so bad because I am very, uh, I, I am pretty sure it's going to be ugly. Oh, no, no. The fiscal hellscape that's about to hit our state is going to be. Hell. Yeah. Yeah. OK, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even totally sure that Prop 15 would have helped us in time because it's going to need a couple of years to actually build up that revenue. But no, no doubt about it. Well, um, well, I, I think, finished, I think right? on that, like you could issue bonds now that are you can soak out future revenues. So if you know you have it a couple years down the road, you can start cashing out now. But I mean, like, you know, you know East Bay Transit Riders, like you put in a campaign about Prop 15, just saying, like, this is going to stop permanent cuts, you know, kind of you have like 30 percent during COVID time cuts. And these are going to become permanent uh, if if not for Prop 15. I think, well, I think that's just going to happen now. Right. We can find ways to stop it. It's going to be really hard. Now, I've not really, it's not for those who aren't, for those who are listening and are maybe not really super familiar with like fiscal stuff. It's kind of uncommon to like pass bond measures for revenue or operating issues, um, specifically for operating issues. It's not normal to do that. But I mean, yeah, if we knew that we were going to get some revenue for maybe the fiscal year after next, then it would have probably been a good call. I still think there are ways that we can try to soften the blow. Some kind of emergency tax measure is fine. Um, how, what that looks like, whether that's a sales tax like Measure RR or it's a, a, a much more progressive tax, I suppose. I mean, it's anybody's guess. But I have been talking to like Berkeley City Council members and Oakland City Council members on what to do. But yeah, I mean, we're undoubtedly in a tight spot right now. Uh, people have to understand public transportation is not a private company. It's a public uh, agency and it needs the subsidies that it can get. And frankly, because ridership is already so bad on a lot of our public transit systems in America in general, it was heavily relying on things like sales tax, uh, sales tax revenue and property tax revenue, both of which are kind of, we could have gotten a lot more property tax revenue than we ever got before. Um, and sales tax revenue was just down the gutter because of the pandemic. So ultimately, that plus the complete decimation of fare box recovery from the lack of riders on the bus system right now basically equals there's going to probably be massive service cuts unless we do something. And it's kind of annoying to me that American public transit always finds itself in this position. Yeah. No, no other country seems to have this kind of problem where we're constantly like fighting for these little crumbs to keep our basic transportation system running and it's because of two factors number one ac transit for those who don't know that's the east based transit system um more of the urban east based transit system it's not the outer east based transit system it's uh, alameda county and parts of western contra costa county that system was heavily reliant on property taxes always and thanks to proposition 13 in the first place when it was passed in the late 70s gradually ac transit started losing money yeah, because the operation costs got more expensive as the property tax revenue was going down. Property taxes account for like 45% of AC Transit's operating funds. Um, turned out to be a really bad call in hindsight, thanks to Proposition 13 and Howard Jarvis. So you got that problem. And then you got the second problem where the politicians that are in our cities and are in our county don't obviously ride public transit. Now, I'll give Berkeley a little bit of credit. 
I've seen most of the city council members on a public bus at some given point. So it, they actually do write it just maybe not as frequently as I'd like them to, but they do indeed write it. Yeah. But it seems like a lot of people, especially a lot of elected council members don't ride public transit and don't care. They treat the bus system like it's some local welfare requirement that like it's obligated that we have a public bus that runs, but I don't really use it. Sometimes my kids use it cause they're not old enough to drive. Like that's how we treat the bus system rather than our first and foremost lifeline of transportation like other countries do and that's one of the reasons why we're in this really tough spot that we're in um but i mean yeah yeah and i I think that goes hand in hand with i think why it feels so i think bad right now because the other half of the badness like the top of line badness was prop 22 and prop 22 you know for what it really is which is kind of this you know kind of in the weeds labor law a lot of people treat it as a referendum on do we love ride shares? Do we love the gig economy? And people said yes, which I think reflects in some case for the middle class and certainly for people who are like doing well. A lot of people have been missing the bus. They just take you know Uber everywhere. And they're kind of and I think these these together are kind of saying, oh, yeah, let's screw real public services and let's just embrace, uh, you know, privatized semi transit and. I don't know. I find this to be uh, not great insofar. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're, you know, I, I have plenty of friends that get stranded because of our god awful public transit system, and they have to call an Uber. And it's, it's really disgusting, actually, when you look on Transit App. That app that all the transit riders use is like one unified app yep. called Transit App. You look on there and you see the like time competitive differences between calling a Lyft or an Uber versus waiting for public transit. It'll be 45 minutes for a bus just to get here and just to take you somewhere versus like a nine minute travel time um, calling a Lyft. And it's just right there as an option. Most people don't care that you have to pay a little bit more money. They're going to probably take the rideshare option. But let's be clear here. Rideshare's dominance and complete decimation of our public transportation system which it is competing with by the yeah. way the fact yeah. is is that ride, ride share does not compete against private autos it mostly competes against um people who do not use cars which is mostly public transit riders and provides them a better alternative than public transit right so that actually becomes a perpetual cycle where more people are using ride share which in turn decreases public transit usage which in turn makes public transit more useless and you know declines fare revenue which in turn results in uh, service cuts But what's important to understand here is the reason why rideshare does so well is because, as urbanists have been saying for quite many years now, American cities are designed for cars first. You have big freeways going through cities for cars. You have streets for cars. Public transit is treated as a side thing. It's treated as an inconvenience for cars. It's treated as a little welfare system that like normal people aren't supposed to ride. That's what public transit is treated like. And so Uber has optimized Americans' car centrism and provided them an ability to use cars without actually having a car, usually by, tra- not usually, almost explicitly, fundamentally by you know, trampling on the rights of employees and making them these weird half employees that basically don't have any rights and don't have any guaranteed hours and don't have any real uh, genuine sources of, uh, of, of, of income. And so this is a systemic problem that needs to be addressed. Yes, Uber needs to be regulated just like a lot of other industrialized countries did when it first came out. But also the car centrism is why it prospers so well. And so... You know, if you're not addressing that, then it was never going to be fixed. As for the fact that Prop 22 passed, yeah, that's going to be really bad for public transit because rideshare has been bad for public transit. It's kind of sad to say, but like you sort of want to force people to just take public transit as opposed to not having a Uber to call in a couple of minutes. Yeah. But I mean, the truth is, is that like, look, I, I, I knew I was going to pass. 
I didn't want to believe it was going to pass. Oh, yeah. I opposed it was, it was, Proposition 22. I, I, I'm a transit activist. Yeah. Of course, I didn't want it to pass. Um, but the truth is, is that everywhere I looked, it was yes on 22. Even in the urban East Bay, like Berkeley, Oakland, yes on 22 posters, yes on 22 signs. My neighbors are ordering Uber Eats, and I see them on their laptops on the balcony, yes on 22. Did you see this? Here's a survey. I got a like Uber text message. I don't even use Uber. Yeah. And Uber sending me SMS text messages about potential service cuts that they weren't really going to do just to try and scare people into voting yes on 22. And my public transportation system doesn't send me SMS text messages when it fails. But when Uber is making a vile threat, um, all of a sudden that gets a SMS text message from me. It was no surprise. And as soon as I left like Berkeley and just stepped a couple of feet into like Albany and El Cerrito and the further up, up uh, state and up region I went, Yes on 22 everywhere, no on 22 nowhere. It was not a surprise that it passed, sadly to say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination. When you put half a billion, you know, of ad, ad money, you know, you get all the low information people. And then everybody who genuinely is locked in because they like the convenience of the consumer. Yeah, I think that's a very strong block. And I think it was pretty clear uh, it was almost certainly going to pass for that reason. But here, here's an unpopular opinion, you know, of kind of we talk about, you know, the private semi-transit of uh, Uber and Lyft versus public transit. Honestly, the thing it isn't really to me an issue of public versus private of why I think one is preferable to the other. It's really about the car centrism. Like if you go back, you know, pre mid 20th century when you had private streetcars, I would happily do that if it worked. But, you know, it doesn't scale anymore because we built our cities insofar as private streetcars stop being profitable. And, you know, I mean, the illusion that we ha like, I mean, everything's being subsidized still, you know. So we have this car semi-transit, which one still has a terrible uh, throughput. It still facilitates car culture and it's not even sustainable. I don't know. Like, I think it's just if Uber was riding bus like sending buses out and they're killing our public buses i wouldn't even cry you know i'd say oh they're buses they work but like it's just a bad model of moving people around i don't know is that is that wrong to say i mean philosophically i do think that it's better to have a public transportation system than a private one um i think we would feel that way about all of our basic necessities even housing itself um, but also, like, generally speaking, we could a, a public transportation system like everyone knows on Twitter. I love the Hong Kong MTR. I think it's like the perfect transit system out oh, there. Beautiful. A lot of the East Asian transit systems, even the, many of the European transit systems are so superior to the United States. And one of the things they do a lot is like commercial land leasing. Now, a private business would almost certainly have to do that if it were running a private streetcar system. As a matter of fact. The funny part is they all got that from the United States, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, East Bay especially. I mean, all of yeah. like the streetcars just build up all these uh, developments all throughout the East Bay. So, so, so for people who don't know, I mean, almost certainly if you live in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, your neighborhood was probably part of some streetcar speculators plans, right? So they developed all these neighborhoods and they made sure they were cent uh, centralized around a streetcar network. And that was a guaranteed way to get ridership for the streetcar company. Right. So all these neighborhoods that exist today, if they have a lot of street grid style patterns and they're very dense, even if they're somewhat suburban, um, all the current streetcars, Mini Metro, a lot of the corridors that were former key system streetcars in the East Bay, these were all private rail companies that had developers build your neighborhood and then you would go to the local streetcar and rely on it. 
Um, and that's where a lot of other countries have gotten their sort of idea for how to do a successful land lease system. Instead of having that private land owned by a private owner, they would instead have it owned by the state. And then that would in turn generate revenue into the state's land and therefore run better streetcar service. Whereas in the United States, what we instead did was subsidize um, a certain type of automobile industry over the rail system and basically made it pretty clear almost with state pushing, but also just through uh, private capitalistic interests that the streetcar was going to go the way of the graveyard um, and that the cars would dominate. And that's why we have such car centrism today. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I'm not so so personally I am in favor of a public transportation network but yeah I mean if Uber was running zero emission buses you know and and they were functioning like public transit I know everybody hated the tech shuttles and those were pretty unequitable for 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 reasons because those were corporate shuttles of course I would prefer it over people driving to Silicon Valley but yeah you know, that's not it's not that's not the best public transit system in the world or that, that's not the best transit system. In the world. It's not transit. It's, it's private. A private yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's not really shuttle. it's not really transit. It's, it's a private shuttle. But I mean, if, if a if Uber and Lyft were doing like some if Uber and Lyft proposed tomorrow to build like a private rail network that basically functioned like a public transit network today, but it was just privately run. You know, they have some privately run rail lines even in Europe. I think that's fine. I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't be mad about it. But the fact is that they're trying to optimize the worst transit out there, which is cars, which is polluter transit. It's making congestion in many cases like like 50, 60 percent worse than it previously was to pre rideshare. This is not good transit. Right. I don't have a problem with things like Lime scooters or even go bikes. I think those are fine. I really don't care. For profit mobility devices, Daryl. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the for-profit mobility devices. Not meaning cars, yeah. asterisk. Uh, no, no. I think those are fine. I've never complained about those. I want more of those. I, I hate the fact that I don't have any go bikes near me. They're all like a couple streets away from me. But at the same time, like those aren't the problem here, yeah. right? That's not exploiting workers right now. That's not not paying workers when they're not technically in the act of delivery. That's not not guaranteeing workers any hours. That is like rideshare in specific, specifically. So- you know, that's sort of the problem here. And I don't, I guess the only way we can fix it, I said this before, and I'm glad that street blogs posted it. The only way you can beat rideshare now is by eliminating car centrism. Yeah. Right. And so progressives and all the activist groups got to get on board with bus only lanes, public streets for public transit first, non uh, automobile based streets, safety such as bike lanes scooter lanes wider sidewalks more accessible sidewalks and hey even though disabled people disproportionately rely on non-car transportation than car transportation even in cases of folks who do need to drive because they're disabled keeping parking spaces away from able-bodied people who really should be taking alternatives and giving it to disabled folks who do need to drive is the way to go i want only disabled parking you're not disabled you should be driving and also improving public transit so that disabled people can actually ride it and not be scared to take it because in many cases it's not accessible that's what we have to do and that's why i'm so excited that we elected terry taplin in berkeley because he's going to do a Green New Deal that's going to focus a lot on expanding public transportation and any private solutions have to be zero emission and non-car based. I, I'm very excited for that. But I mean, yeah, that that's the status of our public transportation system in California. It's basically screwed next year as far as I can tell. Yeah, and I, th I think you're right to say a better world is possible. A better world means taking away, uh, you know, inefficient and regressive and, you know, uh, uh, you know, earth killing means and giving them to other purposes. Uh, it's, it's, it is very possible to do this, but 
it takes the will to uh, take away land from some people, give it to other people, take it from cars, give it to buses. And even in, uh, you know, what is ostensibly the most progressive places, this is still a, a hard lift. I think it's unfortunate that this is, you know, this isn't a slam dunk, but it, but it is. Uh, uh, the the average person is heavily um, indoctrinated with car and fossil fuel propaganda. And unfortunately, it's kind of a vindictive cycle where after extensive public subsidy of private automobile transportation options as being the sole subsidy, the sole form of transportation, things like freeways, um, eliminating public transportation, the accessibility of cars over other forms of transit, it's kind of a vicious cycle where if you even suggest any kind of alternative, people have a hard time of seeing what that is and will reflexively oppose any changes. It was a great way to become an entire country's transportation lifeline. And even people who ordinarily, when it comes to housing or energy or any other issues, are staunchly pro-public versions of that, all of a sudden are like, well, but the automobile industry has got to have its way. And unwittingly enriching the fossil fuel industry at the same time. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, uh, you talk about uh, Terry uh, Taplin. So let's, let's, we're, we're kind of just briefly talking about these, the big props, but let's talk about local, local races. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a mixed bag uh, across the board. I think, you know, you can look at some bright spots, uh, but uh, okay, well, maybe let's start with kind of uh, state Senate stuff, because that's a bit interesting. Uh, you know, we mentioned like earlier, uh, Dave Cortezi down in the South Bay, he was pro-15, anti-22. He he beat uh, Ann, Ann Ravel, so uh, that's good to see that uh, even though both <laughs> both the bad props uh, passed, at least the better candidate. Uh, over in your, your neck of the woods, uh, Nancy Skinner, uh, like a solid 90% of the vote, you know, always good to see. That was easy. I, mean, I think Nancy Skinner's never even had a lawn sign before. Yeah, like she's. I mean, some she 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 just knows how to do it. Yeah, sometimes good stuff happens. Uh, I, I will I will give you I will give you uh, full credit. You're you're uh, talking me down on. I was I thought Scott Weiner was in danger of losing against Jackie Fielder, but you said you know no chance. No. Spend too much time on Twitter, my friend. <laughs> I think so. I just okay. So let's talk about kind of like the political blocks. You know, uh, Jackie Fielder is like the whole thing with Wiener was like, I knew people very well entrenched into SF politics on both sides, um, the moderates and the progressives. And I don't think anybody seriously thought that Wiener was going to lose. He's immensely popular among like average San Franciscans because he's an extremely responsive senator. Yeah. So I like he like he is one of the rare senators out there who you like you email them about something and he'll actually respond with like specific issues pertaining to your neighborhood. That is a guaranteed way to get reelected. He is always hustling. Yeah, he's always hustling. And when you have incumbency status, like, you know, it's just it's really hard to like lose unless you're a really bad council member or a really bad <laughs> senator or a really bad assembly member. Like unless you are extremely un- the, the number one way to lose your seat is just by being a terribly response, a terribly unresponsive um uh, elected representative that's almost guaranteed the way to lose and like scott wiener was the exact opposite of that so that wasn't surprising and plus i mean you know like 
I hate saying this, but like the people who win elections in San Francisco are the people who win the county Democratic Party endorsement. So almost every single person they say they are going to nominate is almost guaranteed going or not nominate, but endorse are going to be the people who almost always win. And so there was never any doubt that Wiener was going to win. The question was, how much was Filder going to pull off of Wiener? And I didn't think she was going to get more than 30 or 40 percent. Um, I always thought Wiener was going to win by 60%. That's what I bet Ian on. He's playing dumb. Like he doesn't remember it, but I actually did bet 60%. Um, and I was close. It was like 1% less. Yeah, I guess. Okay. So I think the difference or at least kind of the dread for me is the really disappointing mod, mod prog in SF and look at like the blocks. I mean, the, the, you know, as people say, Jackie Fielder's campaign was run as being extremely, uh, radical democratic socialist. Uh, which I mean, I, uh, I I I definitely think that's more branding than substance. But even <laughs> if it is branding, uh, like how many votes do you get from that? You know, fifteen, twenty percent tops. You need to build it out with more of a of a like a political block. And what was her strategy? Is you can get a you can get a coalition of kind of your uber progs, and then. Uh, also people who hate Scott Wiener on land use because they hate the fact the upzone stuff. So you get like the West Side homeowners, you know, and, and I think what made me dread is you get kind of the prog branding and then the blood and soil nimbies. And I worry you put that into a stew, it's going to win. <laughs> and I thought that's where that's where my dread came in. Because the funny thing about the Wiener opposition was that it was like staunchly different on Twitter than it was like in real life. So the, I mean, I wasn't following SF politics that closely, so maybe I can't assert this too strongly, but her campaign was pretty heavily opposed to Scott's land use in the real world. Hmm. Like when I, when I was walking around the mission one day, I saw one of her flyers, like, like doorknob flyers. I feel like this was pre pandemic. Um, and it was like complaining about SB 50. So like, one of her flyers said, like, neighborhood character. It's like he's going to destroy neighborhoods is what it said. Yeah, it, it had a very strong, like, left NIMBY, like, like uh, flavor to it. Yeah. it. It's got the NIMBYism where it complains about the new development, and then it was the leftism part where it's like, but it's not really affordable. Um, but on Twitter, the complaints about Wiener was that he was this, like, moderate um, center-right supervisor that – enabled like eviction policy when he was a suit and which I, I i don't actually know the specifics of but i'm like i'm willing to believe um i think he actually said he regrets some of his votes on the ellis act stuff and so i mean it's pretty clear that he's gone much further to the left since being elected as a state senator which is why the national media and even much of the state media had a hard time understanding why he was being primaried from the left. Yeah. Um, but I mean, by the way, I don't think that's actually an argument against primarying somebody from like any angle. Politically. Oh, sure. I, I mean, just want to see more substances. My, my right. Complaint. Like, but I mean, like, like, I don't like, I'm not going to lie. If I were Jackie Fielder, um, I would have ran a campaign almost identical. To it's that. the only way to win from that angle. Like, yeah, it's the only way you're going to win because here's the thing. Like, like if you're going to try to take out Scott Wiener, you're taking out a politician who is quite popular. I know Twitter and like progressives don't feel that way, but average San Franciscans do. He's quite popular. He's got a he's got a strong um, and sizable like haterade group, but like for the most part, it's not that large compared to the people who like him. You need to pick him off on the issues that you think will motivate people to not vote for him, and that's not going to be like 
anything other than housing policy. Yeah. Right. You're going to get him for the development stuff because SB 50 was such a hot topic, but time didn't really favor, I think, Fowler. So what ended up happening was, is that when she started her campaign, SB 50 was kind of a hot topic. And so it's sort of like, I think during the primary, that was like the big topic of conversation everybody was talking about. Isn't it incredible? It died this year. Yeah. It feels like it was like it, three yeah, years it, ago. It died. Yeah. yeah. It died this year, which is, it feels like it was 300 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, but by that, by like, like by summer, it just didn't feel relevant anymore. So it's not really clear. Like it's just, I mean, it's going, it's going to be relevant. Don't worry. It's coming back. But um, you know, it just, I was looking at the campaign and I'm like, this is like running on old things that I don't know voters care about. Cause local media is not writing about it anymore. Mm. Um, two, like the economic recession definitely probably helps Scott, um, you know, cause local businesses are worried about going out of business. Uh, and so a lot of business groups sort of undoubtedly like supported Scott because they're worried about that. Um, and so, you know, I never, I just, I didn't really like, I understood her pathway. You want to motivate, you want to motivate the progressives that have always hate Scott Wiener because he was a moderate. And, but that's not enough to get any real voters outside of the mission district, right? Yeah. The mission district is like the hotbed of like San Francisco's progressive base. But so outside of that district, like how do you get more voters? Well, you have to do what Jane Kim did against uh, London Breed, wasn't it? Yeah, or was it was that against No, it was against, it was against Breed. Breed and Leno. Um, where, yeah, Leno and stuff. When she like fear mongered about the first version of SBA 27 bringing scary high rises to the Sunset District. We all thought that was stupid and ridiculous. It was. But I mean, hey, if you're going to get the West Side's votes, you're going to probably want to fearmonger about apartment complexes. So it was kind of the best of both worlds strategy. You got to NIMBY a bit to get, not NIMBY a bit, NIMBY quite a lot about the state land use laws to try to get the West Side conservatives and then make the issue about affordability to get the progressives. It's the only pathway to beating Scott Wiener. And as we can clearly see, it wasn't sufficient. And I think there's one extra twist, which is there is the inc- like increasing recognition from the progs, or at least the people who are the most kind of actually thoughtful of like, it's like for the same reason, you can't say, oh, I'm going to be on the left and then also like cater to like racists. I'm, I'm going to like be a leftist, but also race like because people say, no, you can't be a racist. That's evil. You can't do it. And I think the same recognition is, no, you can't be a NIMBY. That's evil. You can't do it. So Jackie had to be like, oh, I'm not a NIMBY. In fact, I want to change Palo Alto. Like, oh, yeah, I'll change Cupertino. I'll fix. I never bought that, by the oh, way. It's like, the healing thing is like, you, like the Astro, okay, you, you're going to green line Cupertino and Palo Alto. What's your plan? And she says, Scott Weiner, he took real estate money. It's like, well, what's, what's your plan? Like, and she never had a plan. That, but that's the thing, though. Like, that's all Twitter discourse. Oh, yeah. But Twitter discourse doesn't matter in real life. I never saw any ads about, um, like, greenlining in real life. Oh, no. But to be no. fair, I wasn't in SF that much, so I don't know. Like, it's easy to say on your Twitter account that you're going to go punish Paolo. And she said it once. Go she said it once. By the way, honestly, like, I think she said St. Francis would, too, yeah. which is, like, kind of a really high bar. Like, this is what we're calling affluent. Like, half a three-fourths SF is affluent, according to the HCD. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, things are changing. According to the I state mean, government. Yeah, it's like, like, oh, shit. This is not, come on. This is, like, the ultra-rich. But, like, I mean, whatever. That was that was predictable. I mean, look, I obviously did not agree with Jackie because I'm an urbanist. But 
I'm not going to lie. If I were running against Scott Wiener, I would have ran a campaign almost identical to her. Sure. No, and I, I think maybe maybe have played down the Stanford stuff a little bit. But other than that, I mean, that's probably about oh, that's, it. That's I think I would have done it. People, people hate anything revolving Stanford. Uh, but yeah, I would have dropped that. But I mean, other than that, I mean, I, I probably would have. If I were in her position, I would have probably done the same thing. Yeah, but I think you are right. Twitter is not real life. Twitter is a matter. But I think Twitter is like two years ahead of real life. Because like all the weird memes that actually get out in the kind of real world, they bubble up from Twitter discourse. So, so the actual funny thing is, I mean, there was no explicit nimbyism like we kind of saw with Kim, right? Oh, Kim was so, much more blatant. Right, right. And and to be clear, she was doing it for like political purposes. I don't think that's her real. There's no way that's her real position because she was like a supervisor of like uh, whatever Haney's district currently. And she is. like did good stuff so, on like removing parking. You know, she actually was. Yeah. So I mean, come on, that she was just doing that for political opportunism. Yeah. But I don't think Jackie at any point was like tall buildings are scary and bad. She was just doing it like tall buildings are scary and bad because they're luxury. Politicians are politicians, um, which is. Yeah, right. So, I mean, that's I mean, that's a uh, props for that, I suppose. Yeah. So on the same token, like you talk about the blocks at the local level in San Francisco, which let's not spend a lot of time, but just I think it's worth saying like Valley Brown and all this like went hard, like for the same reason to beat people. It's like, oh, I need to get more of the real energy in by uh, villainizing uh, homeless, you know, encampments. And this was done partly by her, largely by external packs. But like, it's ugly, you know, I mean, and I think. Uh, like it's it's crossing the same line. You can't do e- and it's a hundred percent worse to be clear. Oh yeah, like, yeah. Oh, it's one oh, thing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. one thing to demonize. Yeah, I know you know that, but like for people out there, it's not it's not even equal. I don't like people who demonize new development because I think it's reactionary and goofy. But like attacking marginalized, vulnerable people who don't have any shelter, um, that's 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 like genuine. That's nimbyism to the 100th degree. And I don't care if independenture expenditures have done it or not. Um, independenture, <laughs> independent expenditures have done it or not. Um, ultimately, it should be denounced. And that's what you do when people start using your pro housing platform to propagate anti homeless um, BS. And yes, they were doing it probably just to try to get. I mean, the thing is, they thought from, I guess that was, that was against Dean Preston, right? So I think yeah. from their position, it was like, well, Dean Preston's got all the progressives. So we need to get the reactionary homeowners and how we're going to do that we're going to nimby about tents on the street um no yeah right yeah. i've said this many times before any any yimby out there if you don't defend you know tents that cost zero dollars like you defend an apartment complex that costs you know seven hundred thousand dollars per unit um you're pretty bad you're not a real yimby and so that's 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 that stuff like no tolerance for that stuff that's not okay um and i mean yeah it it it, it should it should be called out it's not good and that has no place in a pro housing movement or even people associated with it i don't know that's just not cool yeah i mean also i mean i i condemn the people behind the pack i condemn the value brands campaign for not doing it i condemn sfemb and yimby action for i think saying like oh we still need to win our elections and going behind valley brown because dean is stupid on land use and i think i think that's unacceptable and i I think honestly, the entire SF Yimby scene is a huge anchor around the neck of everybody who's running a humane urbanist campaign out there. I don't know. 
These people are. It doesn't help. That stuff doesn't help at all. No. Put it, put it lightly. Like, look, you're going to always get politicians that do stuff you don't agree with that you endorse. And I understand that. But, like, in an election season, when that's the chief thing, they're like, when, that, when they're throwing out flies like that, that's such a stupid call. That's that's really not smart at all. And it, it shows that, like, there's some deeper issues going on there. You always want to win, but you have to have standards, and it's not okay. I, I've, I've supported politicians who've done, um, in hindsight, like, policy i don't agree with on homelessness and i have no problem calling them out and campaigning against them you never want to shill for anybody that's not something you want to do and especially when you have the support of somebody this is really important to understand especially when it comes to politics when you support somebody and you're in a political position like you're a big housing group when you say stop it or cut it out they listen yeah. because they don't want to lose your support that's politics so that's not the time to be quiet and kind of be like okay or have you know uh, 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 be soft about it. That's really the time to be very like stern. Like, look, that's not that's not okay. We don't want to see any more of this. But the independent expenditures nonsense. I mean, God, man, I wish to God Citizens United would uh, Citizens United would be freaking overturned. I'm so sick of these IEs coming into these elections and doing dumb stuff that make everybody look bad. If you don't agree with it, it's just really bad. Because like, you really can't control what some stupid IE does. But like at the same time, it's like. It's just, it feels so violating. I undoubtedly, because I know there was tons of Yims, Yimbies who probably were like not anti-homeless, but unfortunately had to like back off support or whatever because of the stupid independent, independent expenditure. And it's like, you know, if Citizens United could be overturned, that would be so nice because these people don't listen. They throw their money wherever they want to and it's very frustrating. Well, I, I think, it, you know, if the PACs are going in and making you the anti-homeless candidate i think it reveals you're not doing well enough to make yourself the i care about homeless residents candidate like i it's yeah there shouldn't be any confusion yeah. right like i don't think if i ever ran for office a pack would be like daryl's anti-homeless like i'm pretty extensively on record not, yeah let your records be for yourself yeah yeah like my i got plenty of records on the newspaper showing i'm not but like you know that 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 is a, that's a, definitely a failure of the candidate, but also like the IE just ugh, I hate those IE so much. Yeah. So okay. So uh, more more updates, local stuff. Oh yeah, Dean won. Valley lost. Uh, you know, I'd say that's uh, pretty funny because I think Valley is, <laughs> I think, really shameless in how she didn't push back against any of this stuff. Uh, some other. I mean, pa- I admittedly know nothing about her. I didn't even make a value call. I don't even know. Yeah. But I don't like any of those packs and stuff. That was terrible. That was bad. Okay, update from the peninsula. Let me give my updates. Paul, wasn't there more SF elections or did I, I forget? Connie, I mean, Peskin won uh, against Danny Sauter, which just, I mean, it's like everyone, endo- like Breed endorsed Peskin. What, what's going on? Uh, so, Yo, what's uh, with what's with Peskin trying to kill Caltrain, dude? Uh, I mean, it's, it's all inter-county conflict, you know? It's the fact that... Uh, Shameless. It's very bad. I mean, it's culture war stuff. I mean, uh, most of like... And the thing is, like, SF, you know, they're one of the three counties, and they are the less, like, they have parts that are not connected. So you get Connie Chan out there in the uh, Richmond district, you know, being very anti-Caltrain. It's like, oh, yeah, thank you for being part of this region. Here's the thing. We need real regional governance for our transit and not let local NIMBYs try to kill Caltrain. Caltrain won. uh, Big ups to uh, Dean 11 and everyone else making sure this happened. Uh, Measure RR, big success. That's one of the highlights uh, but, I mean, it's – we don't want – when counties fight each other, bad stuff happens. So the brinksmanship put uh, – you know, made uh, Caltrain Solomon's baby. It just sucks. The weird the weird anti-sales tax stuff was very strange to me. I understand that sales tax is not – so for those who weren't listening or reading this, like tons of people 
um, who were progressives were like, well, we shouldn't, we should let Caltrain die for like two reasons. One, it was a cultural aspect. Well, this is Silicon Valley's transit, um, which isn't true. Public transit helps everybody. Um, Silicon Valley's transit is actually Highway 101. And then the second issue was that like it was a sales tax and sales taxes are regressive. Almost all the public transportation projects in San Francisco right now, like the central subway into Chinatown, are financed by sales taxes. I never heard any complaints. I don't know where this is coming from all of a sudden. And this, yeah. this is really half big. Yeah. Like, we get it. You're, you're taking orders and you're kind of running your team. And oh, your team says, hey, Caltrain. Yeah. So you got to come up with some convoluted reason. That had nothing to do with the whole Caltrain conflict. It was about governance, it's all about regional power grabs. SF was mad that they have to pay money to keep Caltrain afloat because Caltrain doesn't have any dedicated revenue. And I don't think they have as much power on the board as San Mateo County does. So they wanted to try and use this opportunity where Caltrain was about to die to say that, hey, okay, well, you better give us more power or else we're not going to really go along with this system. Yeah, absolutely. That's how public transportation dies with stupid little regional conflicts like that. That's really short-sighted. And absolutely. And and on top of it, I mean, yeah, it had to get two-thirds uh, which is, you know, it's a hard pull. So they had to go for, I think, the low-hanging fruit of sales tax. People are trying to push for more, uh, you know, progressive taxes, parcel taxes, land value, uh, you know, uh, increment taxes, other stuff. But, you know, it's, I honestly, the, the, the smart politicians, a parcel tax would not have passed this year. You know, I it yeah. hurts my heart to say it, but it wouldn't have. So not with Prop 15 on the ballot. Hell no. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> come on. Yeah. So it's I mean, stuff can, it can be fixed going forward. Uh, but yeah, it's it's you know, it's it was the it was it was well played and they they won with a fine margin. It wasn't like, you know, it's they didn't have that much room to spare. Uh, more funny stuff happened. Stephen Scharf, uh, one of the worst people in the South Bay. Cupertino got ousted. Uh, one person, uh, Borgens, a Redwood City, pretty bad NIMBY, got uh, booted. Uh, I, I believe a 21-year-old, uh, what's his name, Coleman, out of South San Francisco, is a cool candidate who got elected to the city council. Uh, Cisneros in Sunnyvale, Alyssa Cisneros, a uh, young, young person with a good a good campaign uh, got added above a NIMBY. Uh, so pretty cool stuff. Uh, uh, bad bad stuff is always. Paul City Council, you know, NIMBY slate just roared right in. You know, Greer Stone, Pat Burt, uh, Koo, you know, they're all they're all back in business. And, and I think it's the thing, you go down the list. I was looking through all the, I was looking through all the different stuff going on. Uh, Palo Alto Legion of Doom. Yeah, yeah, but like it's like this Palo Alto is like you're like oh there's Monte Sereno, oh there's Los Altos, there's Los Altos Hills. Like there's so many stupid cities and yeah. nine times out so of ten. How many, how many municipalities are there in the Bay Area? Is it 101? That sounds right. That sounds right. I think yeah. I think it's like a stupid level of. Oh my God! How many? And nine times out of cities. ten, you get bad people on it. Like we need more regional government, you know. One hundred and one. Yeah. Yeah. This is terrible. It's so stupid. There's no need for one hundred and one municipalities. Yeah. Uh, friends of the show, Mountain View, John Lashley, unsuccessful. Uh, we got uh, Abikoga and Matichek back in. Bad, bad business. Measure C, the RV band passed in Mountain View. Bad business. I, oh my god. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just real, I'm just real pessimistic about a lot of stuff. I can look at the successes, but overall, I just we're not moving forward. And yeah, it was. I mean, I guess I, I, I guess I just didn't really look at it comprehensively. I mean, I live in Berkeley where everything I wanted passed. Yeah, so but, I was, yeah. I want to talk about the good. Like, I think Berkeley is one of the like the nicer spots. So yeah, why don't you talk more about that? 
I mean, we got Terry Taplin in office. That was pretty impressive. It was a long shot because we were taking up an incumbent. She's pretty left wing. So is Terry Taplin. Is but she, she, is she was staunchly. Yeah, I, I would say she's I would say she's left wing. I mean, she was like part of the BDS boycott sanction divest. Movement. I guess the like, question she was is, she, pretty... is she left wing the same way Thomas Lord is left wing? We're talking about Cheryl Davlin. Exactly. Cheryl Davlin. Oh. I mean, is she left wing the same way Thomas Lord is left wing? Which is like. Well, Thomas Lord's a nut. I, I, isn't like, she kind of also a nut? Uh, I mean, she, like, she, she, no, she, I would she, say she was a, a, a champion of Thomas Lord. She wasn't a champion of Thomas Lord. He, she just like pity appointed him to a commission. <laughs> okay. I, like, like that was, I mean, I, she brought, you know, like a lot of her like criteria for who got on a city commission was based on whether you supported Zionism or not. So, I mean, uh, Thomas Lord, I don't believe does. And that's why he probably got appointed to that commission. I, it's what, so what's, what's Davila and like homeowners and like NIMBYism? Um, like pretty strong NIMBY. I don't think she's ever voted for a single housing project in Berkeley, no matter where it was located. I think she abstained on all of them. That doesn't sound like a left winger to me. Yeah. But like, I mean, she was probably, she was like a big proponent of defunding the police, for example. Um, I mean, like, it's just a typical, she was like a typical, typical left NIMBY, right? Like she was really good on like social issues, like policing and, um, kind of new left. Uh, you know, like like minimum wage and whatnot, but she was really bad on like transportation. Like she cared about parking a lot. That was always her big concern. Yeah. You know, for profit mobility devices. Um. Yeah. You, know, you know, those things like that. And she would never vote for a single like non subsidized uh, housing project. I don't know what her record is on affordable housing either, but I, I know for a fact that almost every housing project she abstained on. So we had to. So then, of course, she was actually a pretty unpopular candidate because. Um, for the most part, like she was not very responsive to her constituents. She's we're, she's kind of situated in the most progressive part of Berkeley. That's also the most black and also undergoing like the, some of the most gentrification in terms of white new residents. Um, and so, I mean, it was a really big district, but she just didn't seem terribly interested in all those issues. She got in terrible fights with the city council. I have seen <laughs> like, like they people did. doing like clips of like her, like, not knowing what's going on city council just like oh what you know i i don't know what issue we're on you know it's like seemed like falling asleep during council i don't know like it seems like uh, she like she was just very combative yeah. um she felt the other council members were disrespecting her etc she seemingly alienated almost every single person black or white or asian on that city council um so i mean she was she was she had a tough time but of course like i said before you will almost certainly get reelected if your constituents like you and you're responsive to them. And one of the common complaints I heard in D2 Southwest Berkeley was that she was not responsive at all. Yeah. So um, that's why we ran Terry Taplin. Uh, well, that we didn't run anything. He decided to run. He's a West Berkeley native. Um, he is, he was a member of the DSA and he uh, is pretty progressive. He's uh, opposed to any increasing and in policing. Um, he favors defunding the police and going to unarmed alternatives. Um, but one of the good things about him is that he like absolutely understands like he's an urbanist, right? He understands transportation issues. He understands that we need to have bus only lanes on San Pablo Avenue. Um, he's a big supporter of bicycle and pedestrian safety. And he was actually a pretty like unapologetic supporter of market rate housing, understanding that like most people live in market rate housing and it's stupid to oppose it because you know, Berkeley downzoned its city in the 70s and it's just become increasingly unaffordable ever since. And he was actually one of the first campaigns I've ever seen to like run from the left and say like, look, downzoning was terrible. Yeah. Downzoning made the city extremely unaffordable. Downzoning like 
turn houses into million dollar bungalows. That was not supposed to happen. That's a failure on our part and we need to add housing. Um, we need a green new deal for West Berkeley. Uh, we need to regulate developers. Uh, but you know, like this idea that you can just be anti-housing and be progressive is completely incoherent. And the other two candidates were more favorable towards the police or were business candidates. Um, so it was about a four person race and Terry Taplin, who is sort of the left Yimby one. Yeah. And I mean, there's some, uh, I mean, also, I mean, just to just to specify something that wasn't said explicitly, uh, you know, both Davila and Terry uh, are both black. Uh, so, uh, and well, yeah. And so was the, uh, so was one of the, 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 the other opponents who were more moderate were white and black too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it, it's not like, uh, I mean that, that I, I don't do we cancel out, but like, it just, it wasn't, that wasn't like a major factor, I guess, as far as that goes, even though Becky O'Malley says like, this was like Terry getting, uh, it was, it was like an anti, you know, it was, it was a racist action because Davila. Wait, did Becky O'Malley talk crap about Terry? Yeah. She like wrote like, oh, it's like, oh, because Davila is a, you know, is, is a... what, where is that? In, is that in Berkeley Daily Planet? I, I, I saw a clip of it. It's like, it's like, it was this person saying, it's like, oh, look at this. You know, it's like, it has to be in Berkeley oh, only, Planet. only Davila speaks to the black community. Terry doesn't. And it's like, oh, it's like, oh, is the author of this white? It's like, yeah, it's Becky O'Malley. It's like, oh, that's funny. Yeah, Jennifer is going to Jennifer is what they always say, yeah. right? It's ironic. It's so funny, too, because a lot of her supporters were like long, like old school, like Jennifer's. Wait. OK, let's see. Yeah, I don't see it anywhere. Um, yeah, it was kind of funny because, I mean, a lot of the attacks were against the white candidate who was more moderate. And um, he was kind of just like a, he was like was, a real business. It was really guy. hard to attack. It, yeah, it was really hard to attack. Terry, because he had the progressive left wing chops. He got an endorsement from like he got every single council uh, person except his can his opponent to endorse him. He got like yeah. the, he got like so many endorsements. Like he just really he's a good politician. All like it seems like. Well, he was a good activist. I mean, he's never been a politician. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, so, I mean, that was you know he he obviously knows how to get the goods. I hope to help him deliver with that. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, like he ran an incredible like. Uh, grassroots campaign. It was just pure, just door knocking, um, not actually door knocking, knocking the door, dropping the flyer and then running away. Cause we don't want to give people COVID. Um, and also just doing a lot of like lit drop and phone banking and being receptive to the community's issues. The community has been plagued with gun violence. Um, and Terry has really emphasized to use like community centric employment centric me methods of reducing crime as opposed to the reactionary calls for police, which Davila never supported. Like, like even the progressives agreed, like, the Berkeley progressives, a lot of whom backed uh, Terry Taplin, were like, look, so basically with Davila and the other candidates, it's always about more police versus less police. But with Terry, the policing's good. The debate is about, you know, market rate versus affordable housing or versus all housing versus just affordable housing. Um, that was always, the, and, and, and transportation, that was always the big issues. Um, so yeah, Taplin won and he won pretty decisively and I'm pretty proud of his campaign. Yeah, and, and I think he really shows importantly too, like you can be an urbanist Yimby and still be true to pro tenant principles, pro um, rent control principles um, and uh, police defunding principles that like a lot of Yimby's who try to find the easy way out by uh, palling around with moderates and business candidates. Like that's not the way to do oh, it. He, the way he to is do the it. antidote to, to really yeah. dismal SF block stuff. Yeah. Uh, he was a, he is a real, he was like a, and, and we actually had a couple of those too. I mean, Alex Lee, Oh um, yeah, same, same thing, right? He went to the state assembly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, we mentioned the Senate, but yeah, Alex Lee, big, big, cool campaign. That's a nice one. 
another another like very left wing urbanist who went to the state assembly. Yeah, and actually, I mean, um, I think I, mean, I was talking about the failures of Peninsula, but honestly, there's a lot of left urbanists in the Peninsula. It's only SF which is cursed. Unfortunately, Peninsula they're getting massacred by the homeowners. Berkeley, I think, a little more success. One of the good things about Berkeley, though, is like Berkeley's been doing a lot better. And I think the reason why is because Berkeley was always sort of the front of like left nimbyism. And we've kind of seen how that hasn't worked. I think SF <laughs> needs a couple more years to get there. Yeah. And, 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 and Oakland's going to need a couple, maybe 10 more years to understand. Um, but Berkeley was always a desirable place to live that like blocked apartments in the 1970s, like before anybody else really did. And over time, it became very clear. As soon as Berkeley blocked apartments, that's when the rent started going up. That's when the household crowding started getting severe. That's when the home started depreciating. People liked it at first because it was like anti-urban decline. But at the same time, like by the 90s, it was clear. Oh, crap. We're in a housing shortage. Oh, yeah. We're in a housing crisis. Actually, this was 80s. They, fi- they figured this out in the 80s. So like that's why, I'm, that's why I, I really loved the, Terry's campaign where he ran on like, folks, the downzoning, the blocking apartments in our neighborhoods thing. Like, first of all, it was redlining because for the most part, all the apartments still got built in the lower income areas. It was really only the wealthy parts of Berkeley that, for those who don't know, Berkeley actually invented single family zoning. Congrats. Um, that, yeah, I know, right? We've invented single family zoning. We invented woke redlining or sorry, woke down zoning. Like we've, we're always just the city that invents the crazy thing. But like, I mean, it's pretty clear in Berkeley. I think this is something that like sort of separates us. Berkeley's always been a city that's so clearly divided on race and class, but is small and condensed enough to where everyone can see in each other's neighborhoods. And so what that means is is that unlike other cities like Oakland and San Francisco, where they're always just kind of insular and paying attention to their own neighborhood, it's pretty hard to live in Berkeley and make a claim like market rate housing causes displacement when you can clearly tell that the most unaffordable parts of Berkeley are the parts of Berkeley that hasn't built any housing in decades. It's just a claim that doesn't work too well right it's just it doesn't work because clearly all the wealthy neighborhoods are the neighborhoods that don't build any housing and you have to see it every day so it's like that that segregative aspect of our housing and land use policy is one of the reasons why like a lot of left-wing candidates not just terry but actually a lot of rising stars some of these vegan radicals that were running for office in our town (laughs) also were opposed to down zoning because they wanted to bring a bunch of residents into the city said, look, I mean, down zoning is like segregation. It's it's redlining. And so you got to get rid of it if you want to have a dynamic, growing and diverse city. And so I'm, I'm actually really proud that we ran that campaign and that that really worked out well. And I hope that it's going to be a telltale for the future. The mayor is becoming a lot better on housing. A lot of the council members that were formerly NIMBYs are saying, you know what, this stuff didn't work. Um, we've just become more unaffordable than ever. Let's give housing a, a shot. Let's give transit a shot. Um, to reduce our carbon emissions. So I'm happy about that. Now let's see where it goes, right? Berkeley makes a lot of promises. Berkeley has promised um, with a campaign I've helped run to remove police out of traffic enforcement. But let's make sure it happens, right? Yeah. Because Berkeley loves to declare things and then take years to follow through. So I and, and whether that was being the first city to introduce busing and desegregated schools or the first city to do zoning policy or whatever. So we have to make sure that this stuff happens. But like, I'm 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 proud of the direction I think the city is going in. Yeah, I think both on the long scale. I mean, you go back to the '70s. Nancy Skinner back on Berkeley City Council back in the '70s was actually yeah. like she was, uh, you know, at least complicit with some down zonings, and then she realized the error of her ways. I think. Ber- yeah, that's kind of funny. Like Nancy Skinner was a DSA activist back then who was fighting for rent control, and she admits. Um, she said in a meeting one time, she's like, "Look." She wasn't on city council, I think, at that time, but she was like, look, when I was a young activist, I thought blocking apartment buildings was smart. 
And then we did it and our city became this super white affluent enclave where my children and even I can't really afford to live here under the current prices anymore. That turned out to be a huge, she's like, I don't regret anything I did. I actively push for rent control. I want Costa Hawkins repealed. We need more rent control. We need more tenant protections. I don't regret a single thing I did when I was with the Democratic Socialists. But the only regret I have is that we did the downzoning thing. Yeah. That turned out to be a huge mistake. That was all of the, like, the, the chief source of Berkeley's affordable housing was those filtering apartments. And we just banned it. And that turned out to be a huge mistake. Yeah, Berkeley, I mean, I think Berkeley, even more than like Haight-Ashbury, was like the real home of the le- new left, you know, kind of hippie, small is beautiful movement and i think berkeley is one of the first to get kind of burnt on it and i think finally i think that the tide has turned and i think a lot of people are saying it and as you're saying the mayor uh jesse uh you know he uh you know i i think it's you don't have to defeat your enemies you can persuade your enemies and i think you know jesse used to be uh the scourge of uh you know of the urbanists and now he's a guy that you can work with and even you know get some success with i mean what what's up he was a he was a textbook left nimby right yeah. i mean he he was textbook like super progressive on social issues pro minimum wage pro labor rights pro tenant rights all these things but at the same time like hate on apartments try to block bus lanes on telegraph and he admits okay yeah in hindsight i regret those things that was a bad call um, it is kind of hard for him not to because he rides public transit himself and he's a renter and he's like, yeah, that, that's all stupid. I live in a super like unaffordable neighborhood that hasn't built any housing. Um, it's time to get back on board. So, you know, it's, it's, of course you always want to defeat your enemies, but like, I'd rather have an enemy become my friend, frankly, than stay my enemy forever. So I think Jesse is actually a really much better mayor for admitting that he's kind of changed on this stuff. He's admitted it openly. Like, yeah, my opinions on housing and transit have kind of changed over these years. And uh, I got to give him props where it's due. Yeah, if you look at it cynically, you could say like, oh, he threw in with the wrong camp and he realized over time, actually, the left urbanists are actually maybe, uh, they make a better argument, probably just they, you know, will win politically, you know, get on board with the winning team. You know, I, I don't, I mean, that's too optimistic, but I, I'd like to <laughs> like to believe that's that's part of the reason. Uh, I mean, I think I mean, in many cases, better than the moderates, right? I mean, like the moderates are great on when it comes to housing development in theory. Yeah. But in practice, sometimes, many times, it's inequitable, right? It's one of the reasons why I was quite fine seeing uh, Lynette in uh, District 3, Oakland, go. I mean, the fact is, is that, like, you can be in favor of housing development, but, like, that's not really a high bar for whether you support fair housing, whether you want to see good impacts or not, um, whether you are actually interested in seeing housing being a benefit for everyone, or whether you just want to see more development for some weird um, investment reasons. You know, being a political party that's basically just the chamber of commerce is not something that any serious pro-housing movement can just be, right? You got to be more than that. You got to be pro-renter. You got to be pro-tenant. You got to be fair uh, fair housing uh, opposed to redlining. I mean, these are sort of the comprehensive issues. Saying yes to development is big, but it's not by itself special. And so I think that's kind of what's important about a lot of these housing races. Yeah, I say especially now in the crisis we have during the pandemic, you can't be like, oh, we need to break a few eggs. This is a bad time to break eggs. And like I am very, very clear. I think we need radical urbanism to really change in an equitable way, and you're not going to get that from the Chamber of Commerce types. You're only going to get it from actual progressives, and my goal has always been to convince the left to embrace good housing uh, policy. Which, which a lot of them historically did. I mean, fair housing and, and, and upzoning was oftentimes pushed by a lot of left-wing groups, but when sort of it mixed with preservationist culture, that's when it became sort of a bad thing. I mean, Berkeley... Yeah. 
a lot of the white neighborhoods in the Bay Area figured it out. Like we just block apartments in these neighborhoods and that's how we keep these neighborhoods very affluent and rich. Now, unfortunately, that's become a progressive point of view and that needs to be changed. But like, absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah. it's. It's a it's something that needs to be. Fixed. Well, what's what's your thoughts, rest of the uh, East Bay? I mean, I think some of I mean, uh, I know there's, there's some controversies over kind of some of uh, East Bay Forever One and some suboptimal uh, endorsements in in Oakland or I don't know some some drama. I don't know. You want to talk about that? Um, you're talking about the pack thing that some uh, like yeah Kaplan and all that stuff. Did. Um, yeah, I mean that was just stupidity that people are like slacking off on like as I, I i literally like found out about this the same way everybody else did by just reading the newspaper i think people think east bay for everyone's some like highly regimented group like it's really not much to our disadvantage by the way like i love how the dsa runs things to be honest i mean they are like ultra careful triple care they triple check quadruple check do you really want to endorse this we really want to back this person they have a high threshold yeah like eb for everyone is a quote-unquote duocracy so generally speaking if somebody wants to go do something they can just go throw their brand on it and it oftentimes it's benefited us like when it came to opposing policing and bart for the last two years just throwing an example out there or sweeps in berkeley like it was a really good thing um unfortunately this election season comically it was a dumb thing so like there was some like pro housing pack that some groups of yimbys made many of them weren't even eb for everyone members as far as i can tell um and basically it was supposed to like support candidates now to be clear i don't necessarily have a problem with this this is not how i do politics with the pack stuff don't get me wrong the progressives everyone does packs and money I mean, that's that's just how people think you're supposed to win that's fine i don't care i don't think packs are inherently sinister um, but that's just not my style. I, I, so I didn't even really know about it. Um, I guess I and, just, I mean, call me an idealist. I mean, I have never taken a penny from anybody, never planned to. And I just think that everyone who thinks, oh, I'm so smart. I'm going to get this money and I'm going to spend it to, you know, uh, you know, get people who are marginally for, for my policies more than someone else. I, I think that just corrupts you. And I think it's dumb. I think in the end, these people have no real game plan. And I don't know, like, I, I just think they embarrass themselves. I think that it's, I think the Oakland election. So look, here's what Oakland's legitimately at threat of becoming. And I think this is important to understand. The good thing about SF politics being almost exclusively partisanship around land use, even though that's really just a proxy for other arguments, is good because that doesn't really exist in the East Bay. Like there are plenty of progressives who are pro-housing and there are plenty of um, uh, uh, moderates who are anti-housing. It's it's pretty standard, right? Um, like, you know, um, but at the same time, it's like you don't want to make land use this weird, like, polarized partisan issue. When you do that, you almost certainly make your campaign uh, much harder to actually fulfill. And that's the threat of what was going to happen in Oakland. A lot of this stuff basically was, like, mostly SF-based political actors, I think, doing work for Libby Schaaf's team, not, like, some kind of under-table stuff, just, like, being political partisans for Libby's team, um, getting involved in the housing debate and, and making it a partisan thing. And that was so stupid because they were doing it against candidates who actually themselves had a pretty pro-housing record. Like Kaplan, I, where would the downtown plan even be without Kaplan? I, like that's so insane to me <laughs> that anyone would accuse Kaplan of being anti-housing. Um, her opponent was pretty uninformed about all kinds of political issues that pertain to the city. So it doesn't make any sense. But like East Bay for Everyone goes out and hands people an endorsement because they fill out a, a voter. Uh, we, we give out like our voter um, response uh, prompts and they fill it out. And what ends up happening is, is that they say something really nice and cool about zoning that clearly somebody else wrote because the, the 
the candidates themselves actually don't know that much about it. Um, and then we go, wow, this sounds really nice. Let's give them the endorsement. Yeah. And so I think that like, there's definitely going to be endorsement reform next time around. Uh, we can't have that sort of simplistic, like non vetting of the responses from candidates. Um, it, it was more than just the Oakland races. There was a lot of regional races in contrast to 2018 where there was like, that's not a smart endorsement. Um, but like, it just, I don't think enough information was given to the membership because people were just reading the, um, candidate recommendation, not the candidate recommendations, the, uh, candidate response prompts, like at the same, like just at face value without any real criticism or analysis of the record. And so whoever says the most, like whoever says the Z word, the most, yeah. uh, <laughs> gets, gets our endorsement. No, nah, it's stupid. And, and, and that, that's gotta be fixed. Um, I mean, it's very so clear. It's like I, a bimodal distribution of like, there's people who are equitable urbanist people, and there's people who really are just chamber of commerce people who know to say like, "Oh, I yeah, yeah I like zoning reform," and you like you know them when you see them. It's very easy to tell these apart. Like in in Palo Alto, like well, sometimes can, you know when, you know them when you see them if you're experienced in the field. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you're if you're discourse because uh, all you got to do is just stop talking about zoning and talk about literally any other. Throw up rent control. Yeah. Throw up minimum wage. Throw up policing, and they're just terrible. Like Derek Johnson, as soon as you talk about any, I mean, even on zoning, he wasn't that good. I, yeah. like, I, I listen to him; is like he just doesn't really seemingly have any knowledge of these issues. Um, like he, he's no pro housing staunch uh, person like Kaplan was. Stupid call, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, great, great you know, and Paul Alto is an example. Like on every issue of tenants, one hundred percent bad every single time. Is he better than Lydia Koo on zoning? Yes, but I don't trust him. Like anywhere and i think that's the thing you know which is i don't these people are not my crowd we like and i think you need to build up a real crowd who's going to do better stuff i was disappointed that east bay for everyone didn't endorse jesse Aragon. we just didn't even take up that race that was another example of us not making a right call there look we're a young org that's literally only been around for a couple years so we don't have like we've only been through like really two elections. I wouldn't really count 2016. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's live and learn. Like you got to fix these things. We're going to have a higher voter threshold next time. I think um, we're going to have a lot more um, better election analysis on the responses to the, the, the prompts we send out to elected or, or, or candidates or elected representatives. Um, you know, just, it, it wasn't, it was, it was a very suboptimal endorsement process for sure. Speaking and there's always kind of that divide between like people who are very heavily involved in the endorsement process versus people who are activists who are not in the field. Right. Like all this dumb drama about this, like pack or whatever, that's like, like taking lift money and in, in some nonsense that some Yimbies were involved in. Like, I don't know anything about this. I'm busy doing like traffic enforcement. I, I like, I really don't have any time to like know about these goofy packs, but unfortunately there's people out there who are like much more involved in the partisan political stuff than they are involved in the activist stuff. And I mean, whatever, but again, reform, reform, reform. And said, Always got to learn from your mistakes. I said before SFUMB, I think it's just bad news. And uh, you know, the person behind this, uh, is on the board of of you know the SFEMB org, so not good. I don't know. Like just just I feel like the peninsula and the East Bay quarantine San Francisco. Just you, we need to keep these people contained because they're just poison. I don't know. Bad city. All the all the independent expenditures that were doing all the anti homeless stuff. It's all like SF hack. Oh yeah. The hell? <laughs> like what are you like? What are you doing over here, man? Like come uh, go away. I just, like it's so frustrating to me because we were going into this election like so great. Like I was, I was going into this election like, man, we got nothing. We're on top. We're playing total offense, no defense. Yeah. Right. 
Like yeah. we we could re, we could relax. We're not going to lose any pro housing seats. We got Kaplan, we got Cal, we got Aragon. We're going for this incumbent here, who's going to be even more pro housing. Like I mean, it's just great stuff. And then all of a sudden, people are like doing untoward nonsense behind people's back. And so that's um that's very frustrating. But whatever. Again, live and learn. Like I know a lot of local organizations that have made endorsements they definitely regret. Um. So yeah, I know. mean, you're, you're, you're going to make mistakes. It's how you recover, keep your, keep your, you know, integrity intact. Needs a, needs a little bit more regimentation, a little less. Anyone can go take the brand and go do whatever they want. That was kind of the problem. I think that East Bay for everyone had, and we can fix that. That's not really a problem. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a line to cross between anarchism and kind of having a, like a solid cadre who is like real, real, you know, militant, you know, they're both bad. Yeah. You need to find a middle ground. Uh, other news in the East Bay, like, is there any hope for this strange cursed island of Alameda? Uh, I mean, Alameda, history of white supremacy, uh, just real ugly place. And then, like this year, uh, I had a measure to you know, uh, you know, uh, to to try to uh, remedy some of its uh, you know anti dense housing uh, laws, and it you know uh, basically the the racist zoning stayed in place and like i don't know like this place alameda just seems cursed and this is part of the regionalism of like who is going to who is going to take them to task like why doesn't oakland just eat alameda up i mean unfortunately annexation just does not seem very popular um it seems like it's an impossible thing to do i would love for oakland to just annex berkeley and annex albany and annex san leandro and annex Piedmont and, and, and Alameda, like in Emeryville, yeah. whatever, like, please do it. But unfortunately that's never going to happen. Um, we're just not in that political period of our lives anymore. Like that's not, that's not, this isn't the early 1900s. I mean, um, here's the thing though. It's like, we are talking politics is like, why are we saying anything is off the table? You're depolicing traffic. It stops, would have to like, be from the state. It would have, yeah. Look, traffic stops might be easier than annexation. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, look, you're, but you're taking on a hard thing seriously, and I am dead serious. Regionalism is so screwed up. We actually need either. It would have to come from the state. That's what I'm saying. That's the thing. But we have state, like state senators can start working on this stuff. I don't know. Like, is this like is that the thing? Like, if you say if you make a state, if you make a like a, like the state senate comes together, it says, hey, let's annex Atherton into redwood city or other stuff like is, is are people in the central valley going to say oh no don't do that or like are they going to say i don't care like what what's sometimes that happens sometimes that happens because they get scared if you do that here you're going to do it to another group of cities next yes and i, right? I think and, and, and then the league of california cities is pretty strong in the legislature. yeah i guess so yeah. they would absolutely be opposed to that they support more <laughs> stupid fracturing of city governments but the bay area has 101 municipalities and it's so and dumb. all i'm saying is i think that the urbanists who are taking on the nimbies who are taking on livable california who are taking on all these regressive forces i think we also need to take on the uh, league of california cities and say i do and say like we we I, need like six cities tops in the bay area you know we i do think there is a political opportunity to do it right now though because with the ensuing municipal bankruptcy that is absolutely going to devastate small cities yes. without any real resources, it might be a good opportunity to be like, hey, well, you can save yourself from bankruptcy if you incorporate and join this local metro area. That'd, That'd be, be cool, so right? beautiful. Uh, I mean, like, it was funny, like, even in good times, Moraga, you know, what was that, four years ago, Moraga went bankrupt, you know? Like, so many of these rich bedroom communities are going to go so freaking bankrupt. It's going to be funny. 
you know? Yep. And like, and almost every bedroom community will. I mean, I don't know how they do it. Like the, the fiscal liabilities are too substantial. They got to pay those pensions. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't, you know, that at this point, it's a question of like, how are you going to get out of bankruptcy? Yeah. What are your liabilities going to be in the country schools? You know, that's not very clear. What's going to happen. Sales tax revenue is down. What are you going to do? Yeah. I, I would love to see them annex, but I don't really hear anybody talking. Sure. About well, all I'm saying is like, uh, to get back to the props, prop 15, on one hand, I say, Prop 15 was so, 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 so obviously the right answer. You had to pick it. On the other hand, I am saying like, uh, like my eyes are like sparking with like flames and just saying you had a chance to save yourselves. You evil cities had the chance to save yourselves by like supporting Prop 15. I maybe it's like, yo, it's, it's, it was all like Southern California who really screwed up, but because it failed, you are so, so screwed right now. And honestly, the accelerationist cap I have on is just saying, like, yes, you know, you are going to pay. <laughs> like, you have dug your own grave, you know? I don't know. Like, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but the chaos is coming. And I think it is up to us to try to say, how do we deal with this chaos? I don't know. Who pushes it? Who pushes it? I mean, I think it. Yeah. I think it's... You think Nancy Skinner would... would... From Berkeley would say I support annexing Berkeley into all into Oakland. Like I, I'd love to see that happen. Well, I, I, just I don't think know. Berkeley I is not the first one to go. I think you know it's divide and conquer. Really? The first ones to go are seriously the small this cities. Stupid, like Monte Sereno. You like who cares about Monte Sereno? Like that should be annexed. But then it goes to like the evil rich places. I mean, like if you do like Atherton, of course, then you get billionaires who live there. But like, you know, we're on a completely different mindset than the California legislator. They will do everything they can to protect the evil rich places. That's why SP 50 isn't law right now. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. The only, the only thing that rich suburbs probably fear more than zoning and, and enrolling more kids into their schools is annexation. So, I mean, that's kind of a scary. No, thing no, no, absolutely. That. And I think that's the thing. What is the what are the hardest issues to take on? It is anything that takes rich, exclusive areas of task. Look how busing was mainstream 50 years ago and has completely been shelved. You know, and who's going to bring it back? You know, it's I don't know anybody in the Bay Area outside of Berkeley that does like anti-racism busing at this point. I I, I don't there, there's a there minor campaign that? with uh, East Palo Alto, Ravenwood and, and Palo Alto. But it's like it's more of a oh, it makes you feel better. You know, they don't. Re- Plus, the, the school district segregation is so bad in terms of like because it follows the cities that are themselves proxies for race. Oh, yeah. So this kind of becomes a, a problem where like you can't actually segregate effectively. You can't really integrate effectively because like you have completely different school districts. I mean, this is this is kind of the problem facing even Berkeley, which pioneered the busing program that like you can't really integrate schools that with, with no black population anymore. Right? I sure. mean, that's kind of the problem that we're running into. Um, as for annexation, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think like, I mean, I don't actually think that municipal annexation is something we should focus too much on. I think County annexation would make way more sense. Like you actually merge the counties. Yeah. There should just one big area County. Well, I mean, the other thing is you could actually take more of the, power and, and put them into like mtc mtc would be because, the land use authority yeah you could yeah but the, but the fact that you like completely cross counties like within like your average bay area commuter from like solano county coast like crosses one two like three county lines to get to work I, that's just kind of stupid i think that's really ridiculous these counties don't need first of all sf doesn't need to be its own county like that's dumb and then two like Alameda County doesn't need to randomly end at Albany and Berkeley. That's like old, like late 1800s policy that, that why those things exist. 
they don't need to be here anymore. Yeah. All the counties do is make it really hard to do any regional action whatsoever because the only bodies we have are these unofficial bodies like the Association of Bay Area Govern Governments or like um, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. And that's why we have a bajillion different transit agencies and a bajillion different bodies and a bajillion different jurisdictions because and really the counties are the problem. Like, so just make one county. You could have one transportation network. You could have one housing authority. I mean, you could just do it all with a county. Well, it's what you do with it. Like New York City, for example, all the boroughs are counties. And what happens, it more or less works because at the turn of the century, they did a lot of crazy legislative action to, you know, basically supersede the counties with the city government. And, you know, you could do that here, but they took it took like a like an actual U.S. senator from New York. It took a lot of extremely strong coalitions, some true believers, but and they, and they made it happen. They formed a city. Could you do that in the Bay Area? You absolutely could, but it would be a big lift and you need people who really are fighting for it for different reasons. Like, for example, cynical reasons. If you want to have a good economy, you need to make the Silicon Valley you know, like workhorse function and right now it's 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 like seriously i mean i think it can't be overstated like you could say silicon valley sucks but silicon valley is a money-making machine and it's being strangled by a bunch of old biddies you know throughout the throughout the old order i mean not even not even that it's being strangled that all the wealth that's generated from property taxes um from uh sales taxes um, from any other taxes that mainly come from office development on the peninsula is being kept exclusively on the peninsula. Yeah, it, 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 That's a problem. This, this is something I really hate. There was a lot of, I noticed this was like really common in Oakland for some reason. There was a lot of people running in Oakland elections who were like, we live in one of the richest regions in the world. Why can't we solve the housing crisis? Why don't we tax the tech companies? And the whole time I'm like, because you don't live where the tech companies are. Yeah. They, they are on the other side of the bay in San Francisco and on the peninsula. You don't live there. You don't have any taxation power. Hell, you don't even have county taxation power, right? So, so you get you, the you, tango you like of like they say, like, oh, so we need to attract the tech companies into our city so then we could tax them. <laughs> which is Right. Well, you could do that. Or you could try the other option, which is like, well, maybe it's time for Oakland to start annexing Cupertino. Oh, hell yeah. Um, all the cities around the Bay Area into one city so that you could actually have a, sort of a, a, a region-wide uh, authority over taxation for these tech companies. Because right now, the East Bay functions mostly as a bedroom community for Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is not really located in the East Bay. Of course, there's a couple tech companies here and there. Oracle, Microsoft has a little post in Berkeley. Oracle, um, I think, is in Oakland. Uh, there's probably some tech companies in, like, Southern Alameda County. But for the most part, like, that taxation power is not really there, Yeah. right? So maybe, maybe having a regional government would mean that cities like San Francisco that approve 13 new jobs for every one new home could actually share some of that wealth with Oakland that gets all the downside of being next to them, which is higher housing costs, higher liabilities to public services, but gets none of the upside, which is the tax revenue, which is why, you know, San Francisco's budget is like, I think, what is it, 12 billion biannually? And Oakland's is like, I think one or two billion, wow. like it's much smaller, yeah. right? So that's all, but you all commute to give SF money and you take that money for yourself that you can kind of capture through sales taxes, but you can't capture it in any other form. SF gets all that money to bloat up their budget and they can only, they only share it around 800,000 people. I don't know. Yeah. Like maybe regional annexation will be a way to solve that inequitable taxation. And I'm, I'm just saying like, I think it's, you know, you could like, what is the 
like the anti-capitalist leftist view of all this. And I think so many people have this real dippy little dinky view of they say like, oh, what is the long game of like SB50 and all this stuff? It's like, oh, they want to upzone the mission and like make more housing there. And they're going to make, they're going to make money having condos. Like, no, the actual long-term kind of, uh, disruption for money is to turn the entire Bay Area into a unified like Hong Kong chugging around having like incredibly well connected cities because you know you could say that's like ugly that's agglomeration that's you know that's that's capitalism but you can make it look pretty yeah you could I mean here's the thing we live in cities like what is the other options like and prim we live in like little villages and huts and like you know like we only have subsistence industries like honestly that is not the real world and i think anyone who has this kind of like new left hippie back to the land mindset is just a dead ender <laughs> like isn't worth listening to i think not worth listening to. yeah i don't know and i think that's there's way too much of that in in the area which i think honestly there's two routes either you make hong kong happen in the bay area or uh, like, you know, everyone's just going to leave and like uh, it's all going to happen in Austin, which is probably going to happen because people are sick of this we, here. We don't need Hong. We don't need Hong Kong Bay Area. Well, no, we Palo need Alto Singapore needs to be Hong Kong. Bay. Not all of it. We need Singapore Bay Area. That works, too. Yeah, <laughs> that's better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, either either works. I mean, Hong Kong is more skyscrapers per per square foot, you know, but, you know, it's like there's there's many options, you know, all I like Singapore's land authority. It sounds pretty cool. That's what socialists should really go after the whole like vacant housing thing. Like, look, I, I like I, I get it. There are unnecessary numbers of vacant units, but just objectively there's not that many vacant units relative to the housing demand. So like, this is a common argument we hear all the time and we're going to hear it again. So let's just get it out the way. The claim that like, there's more, there's X many number of homeless people than there are vacant, or sorry, there's X many vacant houses more than there are homeless people is a ridiculously simplistic stat. Number one, because most of the vacancies are not like investment vehicle vacancies. Most of them are just tenant to tenant vacancies. I think I actually had a breakdown of this on my Twitter account because they just released the census numbers on this. Okay. Let's just whip that out real quickly. I know we're going into a vacancy debate, but I think it's a fun time. Well, I, and I think there's worth mentioning two things. One is the question of when the market dips, do landlords keep units empty instead of lowering the price and i think the answer is i think you do see that to an extent that does happen uh the big do, do big developers do that because they have debt service yes do like average landlords with some apartment that's more than 10 years old do that probably not yeah but i think the other issue because I, I think and you're right it's, unless unless uh, they do it's because of proposition 13 and that their land taxes are so that the property taxes are so low yeah that like it actually just costs less to have nothing and just let the property sit there. That's what a lot of these vacant units are, just because they're not getting, they're not paying anything in property. Yeah, it's, if if it, you can afford to wait, if you don't have much of if, cost, if you don't want to have rent control, but it only happens really in Berkeley and Oakland because of rent control and like all the tenant protection. So they don't want to like waste time doing that, and they'll just leave it empty. Um, usually because the zoning doesn't really allow for anything else to happen on the property. But even in Silicon Valley, you see that when, when uh, you know, things dip, they don't lower the price. They say, oh, one month free, two months free, because they don't want to lower that price in the long term because it's kind of this conspiracy to, like, no one wants to be the first guy in the block to start having a price war. There is a gentleman's agreement. What do you mean? I'm just saying, like, if, if, you're, if you're renting out apartments for, you know, you know 2000 you would rather give extra, you know, perks rather than drop it to seventeen hundred. 
because I think there's an agreement. If I drop this, oh yeah, like you don't want to drop the rent, that, yeah, right? Yeah. You're gonna try, you're gonna you're gonna try to do everything you possibly can. Um, but like filtering absolutely is real. It's just it's not really real that much anymore in the Bay Area. Like I'll admit, filtering objectively was real. We can measure that. It just stopped being real in the Bay Area because the supply got so low that at this point, like there's no incentive to drop the rent because there's so much demand for even rents at the current price that they're not going to get dropped. Yeah, so you the do, landlords you don't have hold filtering out if you have reverse first. filtering going on. So I got the data here. Okay. Um, so there was, this is not the nine county Bay Area. This is the five county Bay Area. So that's San Francisco, Alameda, Contra Costa, San Mateo, and Marin. Um, but so the 2019 census survey said that there was about uh, 111,000 vacant homes in the Bay Area. That's out of 1.8 million houses. So that's roughly a 6% vacancy rate. Okay. Uh, uh, 67,500 of them were vacant for one to six months. So that means that's just tenant to tenant vacancies, right? When a tenant moves out, the unit has to be vacant before another tenant moves in, right? If you've ever moved into an apartment, there's not someone living there with you before you get there. And what was, it, what was the number room. again? How many were that way? 67,000. Okay, so most of them. Yeah, so about a little, little over half of them, right? 8,800 of them were vacant between six months and one year. That's probably a tenant to tenant, but that's very likely, like maybe with some fixing going on, like you, this tenant kind of wrecked the place a bit, but like a one-year vacancy, I don't know. You should, I think to put this in comparison, I don't know if this number is correct, but I think most people consider vacancy taxes after like nine months. Oh, is that so? So that's generally considered the level of like unreasonableness that you should have a unit vacancy vacant for. So yeah. Um, so again, that's 8,800. So you're already up to about uh, about 73, more like 74,000 homes vacant out of 11,000, right? 9,700 of them are vacant for one to two years or were never occupied at all. Hmm. So that's generally houses that are just built or houses that I, I don't know why a house would be empty for one to two years. I, I, that must be like major renovation. Well, I don't know if it's right? like a Gesso story, but if you are not renting it, but selling new condos, uh, I don't know if these are just rentals, but like condos, like it might- All houses. Yeah, I think, yeah, okay. So it would be worth it, I think, to wait a little bit longer because the amount of like the cost of holding on to it is not going to be the cost of selling in a you know buyer's market you know you might as well wait see you know wait to the right price and i think which is to say if you know if we could incent more apartments and less condos you would see less things just kind of sitting there empty when they're new i don't know like because you know if, if you're I, I, that's just that's just me. That's just a story. But I think condos have more of a reason to hold on to because you get one time to sell it. You know, you make your you make your one deal and that's it. Yeah. So yeah, and and basically, absolutely, there's like houses being held off the market for speculative reasons, right? Um, they probably anticipate a rent increase. They're probably waiting for another buyer. I know for a fact that there are um, vacant uh, uh, properties in the Bay Area that are frankly like unstable to live in because they're just probably waiting for a developer to buy it up or I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but like these are these are sort of the like larger like issues as to why um, you know pe people are facing this kind of problem. So look, if you put all that together about what? Let's just do the math here real quick. So roughly about 32% of all the homes in the Bay Area are vacant for long-term reasons, right? And about 68% of them are just tenant to tenant 
So, which is of of like, the six percent total of of the of the of the eleven percent out of the one hundred and eleven thousand, yeah, yeah, which is eight hundred vacant homes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so that's a pretty like almost housing shortage level vacancy. And again, we don't know why a lot of these are vacant. Like thirteen thousand three hundred of them are vacant for more than two years, um, and twelve thousand eight hundred of them are just completely unidentified. These could be abandoned homes. These could be unstable homes. Uh, we don't know. They could be many of them vacation homes. We don't know why. Um, but these are the houses that are currently not being utilized. Now, look, the fact is, is that that's an insanely low number. I mean, let's just be generous and say that the 32% of them, which are the long term more than a year, um, are the like unnecessarily vacant ones. Right. I mean, that gets you up to about, let's see, uh, something close to about 35,000. Uh, homes that are unnecessarily vacant. Yeah. Let's just say that. We don't know what the situation is. We don't know where those homes are located. They could be in the middle of a sprawl field out in Brentwood. We don't really know. Um, but let's just say that about 35,000 of them are vacant. Like the homeless population is roughly about 30,000 in the Bay Area. Now you could say, okay, well, you can put all those homeless folks in and 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 those thirty five thousand, but that number really drags down much significant than people present it as when you actually dig into the vacancy numbers. And then you need to factor in that homeless divided by vacant units is not any sensible way to calculate housing demand. More people need housing than just homeless folks. It's people who live in overcrowded conditions and can't find other housing. It's people who are immigrating to the United States or immigrating domestically and are coming here for a new job. It's students who live here for a temporary amount of time. It's people who have children and need to go into a bigger place. It's just basic population growth. It's people giving birth to new people who are eventually going to need a new house of their own when they turn 18. Okay. It's people it's, living um, in Tracy it, who are going you know, two hours every day to Silicon Valley. Right. Yeah. The, the, the housing demand is in the millions. It's not just homeless people. Homeless people obviously need housing. I'm not disputing that, right? Obviously, there are some, we should have a vacancy tax, of course. But to say that there's more than enough housing because of some vacancy stat where the vast majority of them are just tenant to tenant vacancies that don't last for a year and only a small percentage of them are actually long-term vacancies for whatever reason, we don't know where they are or why they're vacant. Like, it's just misleading. It's stupid, and it's not helpful. Well, it's a weird, okay? it's a weird I mean, argument, like of like the people who say like the like we don't have a housing shortage. Like, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say like, they're, they're, but they're, they're 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 trying to justify like re reactive nimbyism by being like, well, look, we have a vacancy problem. Yeah. No, you don't. Look, there's a real socialist leftist argument against nimbyism. There actually is a real one. D describe it. And say what, what it is. I, you know what it is. The housing market is not sufficient or efficient at providing the needed housing for population growth. That's it. Yeah, but that, you but can, that doesn't mean we have enough. <laughs> that's a very sure, yeah. sure. No, no, oh, right. Yeah, that's the problem, though. If it, a real like leftist analysis of housing issues in America, especially in American cities that have been in the Bay Area, again, the job growth in San Francisco. 13 new jobs for every one new home. And like San Mateo County, I think that number is up to 16 or 18 new jobs for every one new home. Marin County is the worst, 20 new jobs for every one new home. Um, even Alameda County is four new jobs for every one new home. The demand is wild where people are moving here and it's not just the rich tech workers, it's the service workers, it's the cooks, it's the retail workers. All these new jobs are opening. You're inviting all these people to move here and you haven't built housing in years. We've had a housing crisis in California since at least the early 70s. This is not a new thing. Just go look it up, housing shortage on Wikipedia, California and San Francisco. It's right there. This is well established. This isn't new. So my point is, if you want to make a real socialist argument against Yimbyism, the real argument is 
the housing market is not good at providing, providing the number of homes needed to house everybody. They only provide enough homes for the very top margins and that's it. Now, you, I would dispute that. I would say that actually you could have a combined public and private system. I don't think it's a problem to let grandma subdivide her house. I don't know why that's so offensive to people. Let grandma subdivide her house. Let my neighbor next door open an ADU. These are all ways to increase housing supply and at the same time for big developers, because big developers are in a completely different quantity and rental market than small local um, property owners and homeowners that just add housing capacity, right? You could regulate them and make sure they do on-site affordable, but at the same time, like you want a strong public program to start building tons of public housing because even if we let the private market go wild, like you know maybe something like Tokyo, we can't probably politically let that happen. That's probably not going to happen politically. But even if it does happen, it may not get everyone. So we need a really robust like public housing system, really helping out here and almost competing in the same way um, that private housing does. That's the real argument. That the, pub, that the private housing system is just not very good at providing necessary supply. That's the art. I mean, let's be real. It was private developers in the Bay Area that downzoned the Bay Area in the first place. Yeah. Right? That's the, that's the irony of it because they knew that when they built their houses, they were going to speculate by preventing more developers from doing the same thing and in turn have it appreciate forever and ever and ever. Those neighborhoods are Claremont and North Bray and Rock Ridge. Those are the developers of those neighborhoods who said, look, here we are. Here's how we keep black people out of our neighborhoods. Here's how we keep housing prices high. Just downzone. So stop defending downzoning. It's stupid. Instead, say, look, the real socialist agenda, the real public program should be building tons and tons of public housing. I don't think you should be obstructing market housing, but at least that's coherent. The vacancy stuff is just, I don't know. It's yes, weird, it's a problem it's weird marginally. New conservatism stuff. It's just, it's. Yeah, it's like, it just feels reactionary. It's like, I don't like how new buildings look. Actually, all these old brown shingles and bungalows and Victorians are actually all we need. No. Yeah. Population growth is just too big. You get, it's not even good enough for population growth if there were no jobs here. Yeah, and I, it, it's definitely not good enough when you're like one of the largest economies in the world. That's just a bad. And I, I think another way to frame it is, you know, how does a private housing market in the way we have it deal with creating housing? You know, and I think, you know, it's there is the carrot and the stick. The carrot is, oh, and this is the way we do it. Like everyone is attracted to building stuff through profits. And, you know, and what what happens? Does that give you enough housing? And the answer is in the best of circumstances, no. In this fact is when people can be lazy and they don't do it. And secondly, when they can be lazy and collude through downzoning, they certainly don't you know maximize the building. They just take the profits as opposed to the stick would be instead of saying, oh, please, please, please take more profits, build more. You can actually try to keep their feet hot by like, you know, taxing you know, the landowners and so on and making them build. And we don't do that at all. Prop 13 basically makes that, you know. Yeah, Prop, prop, prop 13 incentivizes you to keep land in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So, like, it's like, of course, the private market is just, you know, it is not it is not your friend as opposed to all the libertarians out there who feel like, oh, yes, you know, as long as you have private property, people will maximize their revenues. Like, no, they won't. No, they absolutely won't. No, that's not true. No. That's not true. That's absolutely. I mean, the, the, the political economy matters so much. And also, like, it's important to realize the leftists are right on plenty of stuff like, for example, the inefficiency of housing during a recession. Absolutely. When a recession comes, I've heard leftists say this, they're totally right. Developers stop building because rents uh, plummet. Now, 
it's segmented. So grandma doesn't necessarily stop building her ADU, although it may be harder for her to get a loan. Yeah. Um, but yes, when your city's entirely reliant on big developers, like especially San Francisco, which they do almost by design because the permitting process basically makes it so that only big developers can get all the special sweetheart city hall deals and make housing in their city. But grandma, grandpa, a guy down the street is not going to waste their time going through two years of a pointless bureaucratic review to add an extra unit to their house. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you don't want your city supply relying on big luxury developers. That's obviously a bad call. And big luxury skyscrapers are never going to be affordable to average people, no matter how many years they've appreciated. That's why missing middle is a good way to do it. It's an economic decision. Lots of people who open up ADUs in Oakland and Berkeley are renting it at much lower market rates than, you know, the big luxury stuff. But at the same time, like while leftists are absolutely right that developers are not reliable in recessions because they're going to stop building when rents happen, they need to really instead embrace the argument that the public housing system will build the supply we need as opposed to the argument that we already have enough housing. And that it's just vacant. oh yeah That's yeah just- yeah 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 and it's a very funny as far as like the kind of countercyclical thing goes it's extremely funny in San Francisco for this hot market in the last you know ten plus years they've been saying oh we we're we have the pipeline it's getting like we're filling up the pipeline you know we're not building it yet in reality but we're filling the pipeline yeah. and then the you know then the economy bursts and like you don't actually build the housing now they have this pipeline which is going to empty out it's just you know. Yeah, and also like yeah even all those house first of all sf barely builds any housing like they build three thousand units a year that's insanely bad yeah. oakland builds twice as many and it's like half the size yeah. that's nothing um but also like yeah tons of permitted projects not very many actual build that's another really good leftist argument in favor of a public system that the private housing market really fails to provide the housing that's needed Private developers constantly fail to maximize the density that they're even given in many cases. Um, when private when a recession happens, they're going to stop building. And private developers take their permits and then just sit on them many times and don't even build anything because they're just waiting for somebody to buy the land with the permitted um, project there. Like, yeah, things would help out with that, such as land value taxes, for example. But also, like, these are real arguments about the inefficiencies of the private market. And, and let's say, like, well, a couple of things. Like, how do you really supercharge the public housing uh, scene, you need to make sure it's self-sustaining. It actually builds and accelerates. Commercial land use, yeah, like yeah, I mean, and I'll, yeah, I want Singapore. Yeah, like I like if we can have. I really think like leftists are always so obsessed with Vienna. I don't know why. Like it's not very comparable. Singapore is. We could make a public housing authority yeah. in the Bay Area. Take Caltrans, Bart owned. Muni-owned, city government-owned properties, which are numerous in the Bay Area, and frankly, up until recently, a lot of public agencies were selling, and like just build commercial development on the bottom floor yeah. or office development. It's publicly owned, rented out to all the big tech firms, all the big commercial uh, uh, businesses, whatever. Give it to Cinnabon, give it to McDonald's, give it to whoever, and then you directly collect that money, and that money, that revenue from those companies leasing out public space, leasing, not sold, leasing public space is returned to the city's coffers directly more so than any property taxes or indirect taxes like sales taxes, which is almost exclusively what the Bay Area relies on nowadays. And that would help finance low-income housing to be sustainable, right? Yeah. Market rate public housing would help too. Like, let's be real. If we're going to do social housing, it's going to have to, a lot of it's going to have to be market rate. Otherwise, there's no way to pay for the Which is a dirty word right now, but it is, it is absolutely. Publicly owned market rate is beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Publicly owned market rate is great. Because when you look at all those luxury skyscrapers, that money is going into 
services that's going to help you as opposed to helping out an investor pay off their loans. Your right? rent so is I'm, now your taxes for your city. It's helping pay for right. public services. And it's a lot more direct and it's a lot more. Look at successful systems like Singapore. Look at land leasing programs throughout Europe and Asia. Um, Hong Kong MTR, like a brilliant public transportation system that works. It's not actually, is it public? I think it's like it, partially it was, private. It, was, it, it but, would but, used but, to be a, you know, a, a public independent authority. Now it's semi-private, but I think it's still owned 51% through the city. Like it's, yeah. but it's partly yeah. privatized. But it doesn't matter if it's public or private. The operations of the system are very common sense. They have tons of commercial development. If you ever go to Seoul, Tokyo, uh, Shanghai, uh, uh, Hong Kong, uh, uh, Singapore, it's so basic. You go into the transit stations like a big mall. And all that mall is on the railroad, whether it's public or private's authority. It's on their land. So all that revenue, like that revenue obviously goes to the businesses, but a much substantial, a substantially larger portion of that revenue goes into the public system, which then pays for low fares, right? They don't have a system that's that reliant on fair revenue. Fair revenue helps, but it's only a little under half of it. Most of the system's reliance comes from the commercial land leases. If we did this in the Bay Area, that would be great. Yeah. Like yeah. we could have a strong, self-sufficient public housing system instead of the one we had in the Bay Area in the past that we literally started demolishing because people called them slums and there was all this poverty, hatred and racism against them. And, and basically they fell apart and they weren't sustainable anymore. We had to privatize our system with nonprofits. We don't have to do that. Yeah. It could be publicly owned. You, you private pro It's a Georgia's thing, right? Like you take private property and it's under public land ownership. That's how it works. But I think that's too wonky so far, but I think we could do something with the BART development. But yeah, just matter like compare what's happening in North Berkeley parking lot they're developing to like what's happening in like Hong Kong where you have like an entire mall, then an entire office building, and then you know, giant towers of public housing. You could put that all in the parking lot, but it's just people don't dream big enough right now. Unfortunately. I mean, I'm dreaming big enough. Yeah, well, right? we're, <laughs> we're, we're talking about it. We're talking about it. Look, and it's not just a matter of like getting revenue for public agencies. Remember, public agencies don't make profit. Anything that's generated to them is revenue, and that goes into the public. But it's not just a matter about getting better revenue. Building denser housing along transit, whether it's owned by a public authority or not, is like a way to keep transit sustainable. If you want people to ride transit, they got to live by it. That's something people don't really seemingly understand. Right now, BART stations are like parking lot deserts, right? There's nothing to do there. Yeah. There's no reason to go to those stations unless you're going to downtown San Francisco where there are no parking lots and they're right by all the commerce, right? So you should bring some of the commerce to BART at each station, whether it's through housing or through business or commercial or whatever, but just make sure it's being captured by public land ownership. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about uh, uh, sideline there, but uh, other propositions, anything else you want to talk about? As far as housing goes, 21 failing is the only other kind of big one. Anything else that you... I mean, did you really think 21 was going to pass? I mean, I've talked I, about it before. Little... 21, it was, it was a cleaned up version of Prop 10, but unlike Prop 10, I mean, you could say for different reasons. Prop 10, Michael Weinstein put it out there and kind of says, hey, I'm going for it. You know, make this work for me. And people people work their asses off and it failed, you know, and I think everyone really felt bummed out and there was not the same energy put into it because people were doing other stuff like Prop 15 this year. But like, yeah, I mean, I felt like it deserved to pass, but I was always extremely bleak on it. Yeah, I think, first of all, it, no one really wanted to go for Prop 10 when it happened, right? Um, a lot of tenant activists like under the table had a lot of gripe about that. 
that they were not prepared to go for it and that they went for they it. They didn't pull and... the tenant activists not pull the trigger. Michael Weinstein pulled the trigger. Yeah, Weinstein pulled the trigger. Yeah. Uh, He's an idiot. In between, in between fighting in between fighting MBs, he pulls the trigger on yeah. things that are not well prepared. So I'm looking at the percent. Wow, Jesus Christ. Despite an unprecedented level of California turnout, the election results are almost exactly the same. It's it, Prop 10 in 2018 lost by it, it lost 59.43 percent to 40.57 basically 59 to 40 percent and then prop 21 59 to 40 percent same exact result despite the increase in voters so it got prop it looks like prop 10 got uh let's see about literally 1 million more voters and the no got uh about 3 million more Three million two hundred thousand more voters about, and it's not done counting yet. It looks like the only uh, county that even voted for it was San Francisco. I think after all the voting is done, Alameda County will probably join San Francisco. That's what happened last time. It was Alameda and SF were the only counties. Um, once, but Alameda didn't come into like every single ballot was counted. It was only marginal. Yeah, and, and um, I've said this before. And, and look, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't. I think like look. Yeah, Weinstein's kind of an idiot. not kind of. He's a huge idiot. <laughs> like, like I mean, the, the fact that he spent all that like time attacking SB fifty and like what did it do? Nothing. And then like he can't even get a rent control measure passed. Like it's really stupid. Um, and I really feel for the tenant activists out there who are like really frustrated with his poor leadership. Um, you know, again, they didn't want to go for it in twenty eighteen. There was no energy to go for it in twenty twenty. It's these results weren't surprising. Yeah, I mean, the, the ground game, you couldn't do it in 2020, you know, even if there was, even if people didn't have other priorities, like you couldn't do it because of the pandemic. But it doesn't seem to have made a difference. It's the exact same results. Well, I mean, I there was more ground game in, in 2018. So if you had that ground game this year, maybe it would have looked a lot closer or maybe it would have won. There, there was also a lot more ballot measures that were more high stakes. Like, yeah, Prop 15, also no on Prop 22. Yeah. Those were all the things that was kind of running for it's kind of hard to do prop 21 it was always just kind of yes yes on the voter guys but there was not real much effort for it which you know and, and um, to, to say something i've said before you know costa hawkins repeal who wins who benefits the most uh you know it's going to be a few cities in the bay area you know san francisco berkeley san jose it's going to be some places in los angeles but the central valley are the people going out against it and like, what are they getting? If you're a renter in the Central Valley, you don't get rent control. You just get better ability to implement it if you get the you know constituency to support it, which you won't. So like, I think you actually need to give people real like actual put the rent control in the initiative. Yeah, I'm just trying to look up the data here because I think last time I checked, overall California. This is a poll from PPIC, which is kind of California's premier polling agency. Um, overall, California adults fall in between voters and non-voters on these dimensions. Um, 50% um, age 45 and older, 50% homeowner. Yeah. So the voters tend to be homeowners, are 50% homeowner and 50% renter. Um, likely voters are 67% homeowner. Um, it doesn't help. Right. So the problem is, and I know some tenant activists don't want to hear this. Um, I know a lot of people don't want to hear this, but this is just the truth. The reason why New York City 
and and New York State has done so well with rent control and all these progressive initiatives is because they've got the renters mobilized to do it. California doesn't have as many renters and the homeowner apparatus here is much stronger. So let's be honest, if you're someone like Michael Weinstein, who in between rent control measures spends your time killing bills to increase housing production in California, even even oppose um, laws that would protect renters like SB 330, because you didn't write it or because you hate Scott Wiener or because you hate urbanists, whatever your problem is. Like AIDS Healthcare Foundation, get real. 50% homeowner electorate, you're not going to overcome that unless you increase the renter population. That's what's so incoherent to me. There's a lot of tenant. Look, I have the ultimate respect for what tenant activists do um, in terms of helping tenants getting legal aid. And I know this is not some like widespread thing, but like there are some tenant activists who like firmly oppose. I deal with them in North Berkeley all the time <laughs> who like yeah. firmly, who like firmly oppose adding more housing that would have tenants in them. But at the same time are frustrated when there's no political apparatus for pro tenant vote. Like, how do you expect to get a tenant vote if there's no tenants living here? We need more tenants living here. You should be in favor of adding tenants because that's more voters for your causes. We don't have the, like, renter population, especially in urban areas. We don't have enough renters. If, if the Bay Area's population was double what it currently is, which it should be, it's frankly a sin that SS population is only 800,000. That's insane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. More like 2 million. It should be two million. There's no reason it should be eight hundred thousand. Eight hundred thousand means there's a severe housing crisis going on. Um, but if the if the renter population was much more substantial in the Bay Area because of new housing development, rent control would pass like that easy because there would be enough renters here voting for it. But instead, because of our land use policy, developers really mostly, by and large, build nothing but homeowner home owner occupied suburban sprawl yeah right that's what they're building i know everyone likes to focus on the one or two new luxury buildings that get built in san francisco or downtown oakland that's the anomaly most developers in california are destroying greenfield out in brentwood and antioch and oakley and all these places to build all these nice new houses that low-income people are going to go live in or middle-income people are going to go live in and guess what it's all owner occupied and they're going to be a new homeowner constituency to vote against rent control not, not so, only rent control like, but just in general the homeowner constituency on the sprawl they're going to be like why is california not voting as progressive as they want it's like because you're like your new residents are kind of homeowner chuds at this point and like the people who would be renters in the city like they're increasingly either joining them or like moving out to texas i don't know i don't know if a lot of tenant activists believe this or this was just one really stupid person on Twitter. Um, there's a really dumb thing a lot of Yimbies and urbanists believe that's totally baseless um, where they believe that rent control tenants are NIMBYs. I don't know where this comes from. It's not true. Um, it doesn't appear to be true, at least anecdotally, but a, some urbanists say really dumb crap like uh, uh, rent control. I mean, the more rent control tenants you have, the more they are NIMBYs because they act more like homeowners. So, what are you saying? Like, because they have stability, that they're they're more inclined to vote for like neighborhood preservation stuff? No. Like, NIMBYism is generally a byproduct of like how long you've lived in the neighborhood. Usually speaking, like that's the, that's an easy way to predict it. And age, age is almost an easy predictor of NIMBYism. Like, and and here in North Berkeley with that whole Robert Reich development, the one that he was NIMBYing. Yeah. Um, the people speaking in favor were young homeowners and renters who are kind of affected by the high home prices. And the people who were speaking against the development were older folks, including several renters who 
are voting based on neighborhood character concerns. It's got nothing to do with having rent control. On the flip side, a lot of tenant activists, and by a lot, I mean this person I met on Twitter who I think might be representative of a more widespread opinion, espouse this belief that market rate tenants are not going to be true allies in the tenant battles um, like rent controlled or low income tenants will be. And so that's why, that's how they justify their opposition. At the same time, they're going out of their way saying that homeowners are allies we need to reach out to. Um, I don't know if this is widespread beliefs or not. So it's, I, it's I pretty common. This is kind that. of a big, like you know, is that is that a common belief? It's a, it's a kind of if it is. That's real. This dumb. goes back to like David that's Harvey real. and stuff of kind of saying like anything about housing struggle is not real struggle. It is displaced class struggle from the workplace. If you believe, if you earnestly believe out there, if you're listening, and, and I hope you're a critic of us, and, and I'm happy because I always want to have dissent. If people hate us, if but have listened for almost two hours. I hope so. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I might I might say this on my Twitter account and then give people the timestamp. Yeah. If you really believe that like op- opposing market rate housing is good because um, you don't think market rate tenants are going to vote for your interest, not only is this really not true because all market rate housing is different. Like there's a huge difference between a luxury condominium and like a, again an ADU in someone's backyard. I don't know why we all conflate these as the same thing, um, but also that's just not true. Like the more people live in an apartment, they're going to want more stability, whether they're market rate or not. Remember, all those apartments in the 70s and the 80s that people were calling developer shill luxury crap are the rent-controlled apartments that people live in now that are the core skeleton of the tenant movement. And so you like you got to look in the future, man. It's not always about the immediate stuff. Yeah. Plus, honestly, personally, like a lot of the people I know living in market rate developments, even the big luxury stuff, are people cramming. It's not. It's not a bunch of like rich techies who are just living the high life. The techies are moving into the Victorian houses. Yeah, that's the other thing of saying like if it's old, then you aren't the PMC. Uh, you know, class traders. I mean, like that. I mean, I think that's uh, professional. Uh, professional managerial class. You know, saying like, oh, if you're high income, you're not really a proletariat. Uh, but I mean, it's. I would say there's two things going on. One is the material interests of everyone's actual. Uh, like what? What are the concerns as far as housing goes? What are their actual material concerns? And the other one is, uh, the culture war. And I think, unfortunately, in the short term, the culture war dominates. But in the long term, it really is a lot of people living in actual buildings, the actual built environment area, and that's a lot more concrete than the mere you know ideology of the culture war. And the culture war fades, you know. And as you say. Uh, a brand new, extremely yuppie building 30 years ago isn't so yuppie now. You know, things change. Yeah, now it's trying to be landmarked. Look, here's the thing. I kind of hate saying this, but I, I really feel like this is true. If Yimbies really get their way in terms of adding tons more housing, I think NIMBYism is actually far more likely to happen. Because not 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 in reaction to it, but I think that like a lot of the times you start adding in these young culture war yuppies who don't know what the hell they're talking about. You start living in your communities because of these new developments um, and as opposed to being priced out of them. And they're going to come up with these same like bad opinions. I, I, I don't know. I think it's just kind of funny. But like I always love seeing a NIMBY sign on a new apartment complex. It's hilarious to me. It's insane. I, I mean, but that kind of sh- I don't. It shows like the average person doesn't. It's not very well informed. I don't know. I, I think I think the people who are going to say like, oh, please don't change anything. I think you get disproportionately more of them when your area is like preservation tilted, as opposed to a place that doesn't have those brain worms. Then you get less of them. So SF is full of them because they have this kind of you know, hate Ashbury mindset. And I don't know. But even the new. Uh, 
condominiums have tons of, but they're mainly anti-homeless NIMBYs. I don't know if they're, but they NIMBY against new development too. Like the condo owners in Soma, they NIMBY against development blocking their views. Sure. Like yeah. that, that's, that's, that's just the history of housing in America. Like every, like, I, isn't there some cartoon out there? Like I'm a developer building a thousand homes and I'm hoping that after I build 200, the 200 residents will oppose the other 800 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a running gag. Like that's just how like housing and, works there's always going to be people who are opposing the new stuff even when they live in it themselves well as we say the segmented market who are we building for we're building for people who are going to be spending big on an exclusive you know uh kind of way of life we don't build stuff like oh here's a boring apartment building no we only build like this massive enclosed thing with like this you know with state-of-the-art gym and all like it's like it's like we don't build modest new housing i disagree well we don't but that's not that, that and, and, and much of that might include the market, but that's not entirely the fault of the market. Much of that is the fault of public regulation that is mostly ineffective. Right? Oh, yeah. So yeah, here's, yeah. here's a common here's a common argument that's like thrown our way. And I just want to hit it real quick. The argument that we're deregulators is really stupid to me. There are good regulations. There are bad regulations. Right. Regulating Planned Parenthood. Bad regulation. Um, regulating uh, voting rights bad regulations right there are really stupid regulations out there that are not good for anybody um race-based uh uh, deed restrictions for private housing bad regulations right so obviously we can all agree that there are some things that should be deregulated and other things should be regulated i want safety standards for new housing i want carbon-free new housing I want new housing um, that is not displacing any tenant. That's why I supported SB 330. I think it should be stronger. But at the same time, like density regulations don't really are, are not safety regulations. They're aesthetic regulations. And I think it's really like like important for people to understand that there's a huge difference between the two. Rent control is a good regulation because it has a tangible benefit for people, right? That keeps people in their homes, that keeps people stable. They can contribute to their community rather than being priced out on the whims of the market. Um, a, 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 a setback regulation doesn't benefit anyone. It's stupid. It's like it's armchair architects sitting there in their planning department going, I think buildings should look like this. And, and that's all it, it is to it. so much so, more. Setbacks suck. I, every city with setbacks that's- Setbacks are so dumb. Every single, every single building I've seen with a setback back looks ugly as hell but also here's the thing too like we don't build housing that's segmented for the middle income moderate income market almost all that housing is like smaller scale adus and subdivisions right that's the housing that's really satisfying the moderate income segments of reina the regional housing needs allocation and all the upper market rate and above units are almost exclusively the like modern extremely expensive um uh, uh, high-rise stuff so here's the thing the current policies and land use of city government in California is to allocate tiny areas where it's politically acceptable to build all their housing capacity, which almost encourages large, huge, super luxury developers, and then keep the rest of their areas low-density zoned. So, of course, you're not going to get the missing infill housing you need when most of your city is like single-family zone or duplex zone at most, and then nothing in between. And then, okay, here you can build up to eight stories, but only this little junkyard that's radioactive and toxic and has a black community near it, right? Like That's basically how zoning works in California, and it's like that's why we don't build the missing middle housing we need. We absolutely need all kinds of housing, man. Um, but like ultimately, we don't have a zoning code that supports it. And that kind of shows a failure of that regulation because it wasn't designed to help people. It was it was an aesthetic opinion all along. It's aesthetic, and also it's the kind of bad way people do value capture, which is instead of value capturing all of the real estate value, you load it onto new 
developments. So then when you have a new development, it's not like, oh, we're going to take a small you know cut out of it. It's like, oh, we're going to take such a big cut of uh, of of you know the the value of this of this development that you can't make a modest apartment building you need to make a mega 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 complex in order to basically pay the value capture tax up front which is why you only get mega 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 com- like complexes you know it's right yeah all the fees and stuff you add on to that stuff just keeps more and more average people who used to be the backbone of a lot of multifamily housing development from getting in the market and it's almost exclusively urban developers who love that stuff because they want competition they don't want any competition developers the fish. Hate they just want the big fish to thrive yeah they hate competition developers in the state capital are not like, like really developers weren't any kind of big sponsor of SB 50. I don't know if the California um, building industry association actually even supported SB 50. I can't really recall, but I don't like, those are the developer lobbyists and they really don't for the most part. Like they were just up at the state Capitol saying we want more sprawl. We want more green fields, the urban infill stuff that the Yimbies like to do. Uh, not feeling that they're, I'm they're feeling good at two it. Garages. You know? They, they build yeah. that in Europe, yeah. they build in East Asia. people here, they don't have the skills, unfortunately. Yeah, and they, the developers don't want to do it. They want to build more sprawl. So I'm actually in favor of good regulations that actually control where that development goes so that it's environmentally friendly, so that it's useful, and that it helps people as opposed to these like super commutes we're enabling, as opposed to this carbon emissions we're burning um, because of the sprawl, because of these green fields and parks we're losing um, because of these sprawl uh, subdivision developers. These are the real important regulations you should be doing, not like I think that the height should be 15 stories and there should be a setback and a shadow study. That's just really stupid. And as for inclusionary zoning, my opinion is like, I actually really like it, to be honest. I like the fact that we require affordable housing with new development. I think it has good socioeconomic integration impacts. Is it an effective, scalable way to build lots of affordable housing? Probably not. But I do like the fact that like a low-income person can live with a rich person. I think having requirements are good. I just think that when you, it's just, it frustrates me how like a lot of reactionary progressive politicians um you get moderates who don't want any regulation or any requirements from developers whatsoever, which is ridiculous, but you get these like insane progressives that support policies that don't really advance any of their goals. So they'll increase the percentage affordability with no concern for how many units are actually being built. Like we're going to increase it to 35% or something. Okay, cool. But like how much affordable housing is actually going to get built? Oh, well less as a whole. Well, that's not helpful. Right? Like they don't care. And then they're like, okay, also we're going to raise the impact fee to a hundred thousand dollars. It's like, what? Come on, man. You throw on all these fees and regs and the only people who can do it are these big super developers that are in bed with city hall politicians. Average folks can't do it. Yeah. good. good. Right? Average people who want to build an apartment complex can't do it. Yeah. Uh, come on, man. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think another thing to look at is like, you know, what are you trying to do? You're saying 35%. You hit your wand. You're only getting what you hope to get in new development. Instead, let's say imagine you can take your magic wand 35% and declaratively you say an entire, let's say an entire region of your city, let's just, or the whole city as a whole, 35% must be affordable IZ subsidized housing. If you just tapped your wand and make it happen, like the city would have to scramble and do it and make 35%, but they don't. Instead, they're hit closer to 0% because they only get it in the new margin instead of actually taking their existing properties and changing it because it's conservative. People don't want to change what's already there. Here's my take. I would totally support on-site only 20 to 25% affordable housing. Absolutely. Rent control and all. If impact fees and every other fee was zeroed out. 
I think it's stupid developers pay an impact fee as if they somehow make the transit system or the streets worse. No, they make it better. It's more reliable, right? Like it's so stupid. I hate impact fees so much. They're so dumb. impact fee. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I have nothing against them. Just you, homeowners also need to pay them. Like everyone needs to no, pay them. Like, like yeah, homeowner. Anyone building under density should be paying impact fees. Or not building. But if you're not building, already, you should get a not building impact fee every year. They're already they're already providing their their they're they're already providing a social service and good by putting on-site affordable housing in there. In my opinion, if you do that, you shouldn't be paying any other fees. Sure. And that actually makes that feasible because I don't care about the I really don't care about the fees. You can find better ways of revenue than relying on development because all that does is make housing more infeasible to build. I just want it to work, and the fact is, people want value capture that just doesn't work, and they don't care. No one yeah. cares. So exactly, so much of the value capture seems to be predicated on like reactionary politics. Ooh, here's how we can really hurt developers. Like that's the whole Forty Eight Hills mentality. How can we hurt developers? The goal is not supposed to be to hurt developers. The goal is to sort of yield more affordable housing, right? Uh, But it doesn't seem like that. You think so. That's what what the goal is supposed to be. But if the results don't ever yield that, there's no introspection. It's all just like, well, whatever. That's that's proof that the private market doesn't work. I'm like, okay, whatever. Come on, man. I don't know what to do. Well, (laughs) we've been talking for a while. Uh, Any any other final thoughts in this very brief election uh, update? I, look, I understand that people are depressed about the losses, but there were some good wins. We got wins in Berkeley. Um, I'm interested to see where Carol Five goes in Oakland. Um, I know that she's quite anti yimby but like, I don't know. We'll see what she can do. I mean, I think we're. Um, I mean, whatever. Well, we, we've spent a lot of time dogging on the Yimbies and annoy us. I think there's good reasons for everyone to be anti yimby I think you know, it just you have to be. There's a lot of people are pretty, pretty big dorks out there. We'll see. I mean, I'm I'm interested. We have a lot of new leftist candidates. We have um right yeah Nithya Reidman um in L.A. who took out a really horrible L.A. politician. Yeah, Ryu, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, whatever. He was like a dude, like sexual assault and stuff. Well, like, that's the thing. Like we make fun of the ghouls out here. Like L.A. is just like, just absolutely cool. I mean, this is the thing too. North Northern California is so far ahead of Southern California. Like. Yeah, I'll give us that, right? We're not crazy like they are. They're insanely re- reactionary. But my point is, is that you got Nithia in Los Angeles. Um, you got Dean Preston, who's also pretty anti-urbanist. But like, whatever. I want a diversity of opinion. Um, you got Carol Fife in Oakland. You got Terry Taplin in Berkeley. You're gonna have a lot of like left-wing candidates who have run on housing issues. Um, Dean Preston's proposing a social housing program. I think uh, Carol Five's probably going to do something about vacant houses. Um, Terry Taplin's going to do a Green New Deal in Berkeley. Nithia is, has really cool ideas about uh, uh, making affordable housing easier in Los Angeles. Like, I think there's a lot of really interesting leftist candidates who have run on a variety of housing platforms, and this is going to be a good chance to compare everybody's models and see which works the best. So I'm excited to see what like Dean Preston and his social housing program does. I'm excited to see what Nithia does with her affordable housing um, streamlining. I'm excited to see what Carol Five is going to do in Oakland. Um, um, with the downtown plan and uh, vacant houses. And I'm excited to see what Terry Taupin's going to do with transit-oriented development. And um, I'm excited, really, for Alex Lee, who's going up to the state assembly. I'm excited for a lot of uh, uh, good politicians who are going to be headed up to the state legislator who are going to push a lot of the housing agenda. So, yes, it sucks that Prop uh, 21 didn't pass and we didn't get rent control. It sucks that we failed with the commercial uh, property tax loophole ending. It sucks that ride share is going to completely dominate, but there's a lot of reasons to look up to where we're going, and I think people should have a positive attitude. I'm putting my devil horns on and saying I am looking forward to the fact that the thing that's been depressing is that the ostensible left has been conservative, but conservatism 
is going to be hitting a dead wall. We don't have the ability to be conservative anymore. The world is on fire. And I think the conservatives are getting their comeuppance. And I think everybody is going to say, we need to actually do things. And I don't like crises. I don't like building a crisis. I I wanted a nice soft landing, but we're getting a hard landing. And we're going to need the best people out there to manage this. Because it's going to let me just say this right now. I'm going to propagate this really cool idea. We need a mission targets for every city in the Bay Area. That's cool. And call all of California. That's cool. Like arena, arena, but for a mission instead of housing. Units. Is that, is that data like, you usually get right now or is that kind of hard to compile? I don't know. Let's see what Alex Lee does. Let's see what uh, Wiener does this time. I'm really interested in doing this. We're not going to, there's not going to be any climate reform, there's not going to be any climate change. Fix, fixing at all if we don't address the car issue if that's not if we don't do that or the fossil fuels it's not being it's, it's not going to happen so i don't know any way to make cities actually get on their good behavior other than having admission targets they have to reach and giving them guidelines for how to do it i think that's the way we could do it and i think that you know i think with some brand and and, and bright um brand new and bright legislators headed for the uh sacramento i think that we're going to possibly get an emissions target bill i'd be very excited for that and i'm very excited for traffic enforcement i think there's a lot of reasons to be excited i i think people maybe maybe i'm just very excited because i'm a happy go lucky person but yeah like i think there's a lot of reasons to be excited i'm not so depressed like everybody else uh, but what one said no speaking of climate uh moment of silence for uh commissioner thomas lord and his uh <laughs> Very, very very sad that he's oh, poor guy yeah yeah we, we kind of took his uh council member out of the council and therefore effectively him off the housing commission although he apparently already quit so oh you can't fire me no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i know right <laughs> he, he probably saw he yeah. probably saw what's coming yeah so uh people don't, don't pick on him okay no, for real like no. seriously like, like, like a lovely people, man like i think he's I think he's kind of lonely, and he, he's just very aggro. Um, he's got unresolved issues. <laughs> Don't pick on him on Twitter, okay? Just leave him. Everyone back. should ask him to come on the show, and we'll we'll bury the hatchet. You know, I, I yes, have him come on the show. I've asked man. him so many times. Uh, okay, but thank you so much for being here. Very long, uh, rambling uh, election recap, but cool stuff. All right, cool. That was Daryl Owens of East Bay for everyone with the 2020 election recap. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes of the Henry George program at the website seethecat.org. This presentation of Keyes Issue, Stanford 2020-2021.